Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Black, destitute of light, devoid of color, enveloped in darkness, hence utterly dismal or gloomy as the future looked black. Pretty good with them words, ain't you? Soiled with dirt, foul, sullen, hostile, forbidding, as a black day. Foully or outrageously wicked as black cruelty. Ranchers across the Midwest and Great Plains are battling a federally protected bird. Black vultures have a reputation for killing newborn livestock. Harvest Public Media's Excret Nunez reports, while the birds play an important ecological role, their expanding population is becoming a big nuisance for ranchers. And a note to listeners, the description of how vultures kill their prey is graphic. Driving his pickup truck through the bumpy pasture, Yancey Paul points to where he saw his newborn calf get eaten by black vultures last March. They killed that calf right down here. Before I could get to them, it was probably 40 or 50, just plucking at that newborn calf. Paul is a livestock producer in south central Oklahoma, and he's among a growing number of farmers and ranchers who've reported black vulture attacks on vulnerable livestock. He says he'll never forget the gruesome sight. They just literally pick holes in them. I mean, they start with their eyes and in their backside and then just start pecking holes in their guts. Black vultures' territory has expanded northward into Missouri, Indiana, and Illinois over the past decade, presenting new problems for producers. Not only do they lose out on thousands of dollars, but they grieve the violent death and the waste of time and effort that went into raising their livestock. Travis Grant is a wildlife biologist and state director of the U.S. Department of Agriculture Wildlife Services for Missouri and Iowa. While the migratory birds are originally from South America, Grant says there's not a lot of research on why they're moving north. One theory is warmer weather. The winters are a lot more mild than they ever have been in the past. And when you have a milder winter, then you have more food availability. They can then survive throughout the year in some of these areas and persist. Black vultures aren't an easy bird to scare away, and producers can't legally kill them without federal permission. That's because they're protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service does issue permits allowing producers to kill a set number of black vultures per year. Grant says in Missouri, the legislature has invested in getting the word out about permits and how to keep vultures away. Here in Missouri, what they recommend to the landowners when they do take a black vulture is you go out and you hang it up as an effigy. You hang it by its feet, upside down, wings splayed. Vultures are intelligent animals and they don't like being around their own death. A black vulture effigy kind of acts like a scarecrow, and it's a strategy that some producers have found helpful. It's solved about 99% of my problems. Chris Cloud is a beef cattle producer in southwestern Missouri that got a permit to kill five black vultures this year. He says he's killed four so far and has hung them up in trees where groups of 10 to 20 black vultures tend to hang out at one time. He says it's helped him keep black vultures off his cows, 
but worries about his neighbors. The sad thing is, though, if I keep them off my property, all they're going to do is go to somebody else's property. Wildlife experts say there's still a lot unknown about black vulture attacks, including how often they really kill their prey. Marion Wall is a doctoral student at Purdue University and is researching black vulture management. It's very difficult to tell when black vultures are actually responsible for something and when they're just at the scene of the crime. They're very good at making themselves look guilty. She says figuring out whether a black vulture is the culprit or if the calf was stillborn can help ranchers determine whether their herds have health issues. But she says it's also important to recognize the ecological service black vultures provide to everyone. Black vultures are known as nature's garbage men. By feasting on carcasses, they destroy deadly diseases like rabies and tuberculosis. We really want to keep the vultures around here, keep them with their healthy populations. We just want to make sure that while we have those healthy populations, they're not also killing livestock. Walls says it's important to help livestock producers learn how to live with black vultures, because as long as the conditions are right, the bold birds are here to stay. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Excaret Nunez. I wish I could buy me a spaceship and fly past the sky. Oh, I've been working this way shift and I ain't made shit. I wish I could buy me a spaceship and fly past the sky. Let's start our next story with a cartoon. It's from the New York Times. It shows two men sitting inside a room. It's called the Elite Space Club. One of them is reading a newspaper. The headline says India's Mars mission. It is shown as a man with a cow. India is shown as a man with a cow knocking on the door. I'm sure you'll agree that this is racist and in very poor taste. I'm sure you've seen the cartoon before, including on this show. We've been asking for an updated version. Will the New York Times publish something that is more in tune with reality? We're not holding our breath for a response because the West is back to playing its old games, discrediting India's achievements and questioning India's motives. Let me lay out the facts first. Chandrayaan-3 is an Indian mission in space. It is the world's first to land on the moon's south pole. This is a fact. As we speak, the Pragyan rover is out exploring, looking for traces of water. This too is a fact. Also a matter of pride for India. A big achievement for science and a gift to the world. But how have they responded? With skepticism, condescension and their trademark hypocrisy. Listen to this. As they spend their money on space probes, as they spend their money on the military, they spend their money on nuclear weapons, still half of the country lives below the poverty line. But the biggest injustice of all... That was Nigel Farage, the man who heralded Brexit, a politician known for his scandals and his hypocrisy. He says India is wasting money on space missions. Why? Because half of its population lives in poverty. The racism is shining through. Also the utter disconnect with reality. We are happy to share some facts with Mr. Farage. It may have slipped his notice that India is the world's fifth largest economy. It is, in fact, ahead of his country, the United Kingdom. 
but it seems he can't get rid of his colonial mindset. I mean, how can poor India have aspirations? How can a former colony reach the moon before the so-called Great Britain? And since he's so keen on discussing priorities, we have a question for him. Why does Britain keep paying for the royal family? Their citizens cannot afford their electricity bills. Maybe help them instead of paying for the king and his retinue. Let me show you another bizarre comment. This is from a man called Patrick Christie's. He calls himself a journalist, and this is what he said. Congratulate India on landing on the dark side of the moon. I would also like to now invite India to return the £2.3 billion foreign aid money that we sent them between 2016 and 2021. We're also set to give them £57 million next year. But I think the British taxpayer should keep hold of that, don't you? We should not be giving money to countries with a space programme as a rule... If you can afford to fire a rocket at the dark side of the moon, you shouldn't be coming to us with your handout. You heard him. If you can afford to fire a rocket, you shouldn't be coming to us with your handout for foreign aid. Those were his words. But is India going to the UK for foreign aid? Let's have the answer from their own foreign office. This is what they said, and I'm quoting. Since 2015, the UK has given no financial aid to the government of India. Most of our funding now is focused on business investments, which help create new markets and jobs for the UK as well as India. This is what their foreign office has said. Christie's also mentioned a figure, 2.3 billion pounds. What about that? It's from a report by the UK aid spending watchdog ICAI and Patrick Christie's clearly did not read the whole report, but we did it for him. The figure is not foreign aid, it includes investments and revenue through multilateral channels. The same report notes that this aid is a tool of UK foreign policy, basically a way to stay in New Delhi's good books. Also, no one is begging for it. But who will explain that to the West? In their mind, this is still the Raj. And these are comments that would have made Churchill happy. But we are happy to burst their bubble. This is the 21st century. India is a global power, not a former impoverished colony. In 2011, then Finance Minister of India, Pranam Mukherjee, told the UK that India does not need its aid. And London admitted that the aid had no impact on India's development. Now, India has landed on the moon and British influencers say, return our aid money. If you're going down that road, let's start with reparations. Let's start with the colonial loot. Return that money first. And we have the bill. Some $45 trillion. That's what Britain looted from India between 1765 and 1938. And this is just an estimate. The actual figure could be much higher. But even this $45 trillion is about 15 times Britain's GDP. How about London returns this money first? Instead of discrediting India's achievement with juvenile conspiracy theories, look at this one now. It says, India faked the moon landing. What do you even say to this? I don't have a rebuttal, just this video. It shows the Pragyan rover rolling out of the lander, moving on the surface of the moon, leaving India's mark literally and creating history. We know all of this. We don't need validation from the West or cartoons from their press. But we must set the record straight. We need to take control of our stories, we say, else we'll be held hostage to narratives created by others. We'll be trapped in their version of our truth. Hawaii.
What about Hawaii? As President Biden surveys the damage in Maui, emergency crews, local officials and residents are still assessing the scope of the loss from the wildfires. So far, officials have confirmed that the fires led to more than 110 deaths, and most of those individuals have yet to be identified. More than 1,000 federal officials remain on the ground. Troubling questions and anger have emerged as well about the role of Hawaii's biggest power utility, the response by local and state governments, and a lack of critical communication when residents most needed it. For the latest on what that perspective is like on the ground, we're joined by Marina Riker, a reporter for the Honolulu Civil Beat, who is based in Maui. Marina, thank you for being with us. And thank you so much for having me. And we should say that as you are covering the aftermath of these wildfires, you were also directly affected by it. The rental home where you were living was consumed by the fires. You shared this before and after photo uh, with our team. Tell us what this experience has been like for you. Yeah, so I would say I actually, mostly I've been um, dealing with my own home and disaster and whenever I can trying to work on the side because it's it's been extraordinarily chaotic. Um, but yeah, my home um, burned down in Kula, which was one of a couple of wildfires that broke out on August 8th. The day of the fires, how were you able to evacuate? A separate fire from the one that took my house actually broke out a few miles away from me earlier that morning. So we were already on edge um, because this sort of a thing has not happened, at least in my lifetime growing up here. I don't remember anything like this ever happening. So um, we were already on edge. We were preparing our go bag. We have three cats. We decided to catch them and put them into carriers. Um, And sure enough, around we think around noon that day, um, a, fire, a fire broke out about two properties over from us. Um, and in the hours that followed, the smoke was so bad and then we saw flames. So that's when um, we just made to get, we made the call to get out before an evacua- evacuation order had been issued. And as I understand it, you were denied FEMA assistance at first, which is remarkable really, given that you're someone who knows how to navigate the system. Tell me more about that and, and what folks there are are coping with. As someone who has had to actually cover natural disasters in the past and and actually write about FEMA and other relief programs, um, I think the big thing that I've realized as someone who, yeah, also lost their home, um, it's not like government officials are directly reaching out to you to give you this information. You have to find it yourself. Um, You have to try to figure out what do you do with the home debris? How do you apply for FEMA? What websites do you go to? What other relief programs are there? So, I mean, in the case of FEMA, um, and this is going to happen, I mean, at rental properties all over um, all over Maui, because my landlord had already submitted an application for damage. Then when I went to submit one online, it was denied because it's it's the same address. So fortunately, I was able to troubleshoot and call someone, but it's been super confusing. As you well know, there are major questions about the cause of the wildfire, the electric utilities role in them questions about why officials didn't sound the alert system, concerns about how residents were cut off from cell service. Generally speaking, what do residents want to see in terms of accountability? There's so much. Um, I think the big question, and I mean, that was just my own question as a, as a resident going through this, was, um, I mean, when our home burned down, cell phone reception was so limited that I don't know if there was an emergency alert sent. We didn't get one. Um, there was, I did see a news release later that afternoon, um, but I think it's just folks want to see 
better communication, of course, in these disasters in hopes that it saves lives. Um, but then also in the rebuilding, like they want to see communities lead these efforts. And what the community that I'm from in Kula needs is going to be totally different than what the community in Lahaina needs. So this, I think everyone just wants to make sure that residents are not left out and that residents take the lead in rebuilding these communities. Speaking of rebuilding, the governor there says it will take years and billions of dollars. What does the future look like for folks in Maui? The one positive thing in all this is I can't even begin to say how how much support we've seen just even from our own neighbors. And I mean, communities are really coming together, um, I think, to lead the charge in the rebuilding efforts. But yeah, this is I mean, it's absolutely devastating. There aren't even really I mean, and devastating just feels like such a small word to describe the magnitude of this. There's just the deadliest disaster we've had um, in Hawaii and, and the deadliest wildfire in modern history in the U.S. So it's going to be very slow. But I think the big point is we want to see communities lead the rebuild um, and and have them have their voices heard in that process of of how we're going to recover from this to the extent that you've been able to to focus on your work um do you have a sense of of where that reporting will head next and the work that you do for the civil beat well so it's really interesting um because i actually worked as a reporter in texas when hurricane harvey hit um and i had very minor home damage but nothing not like this where my home is leveled and I have nothing and I had to try to go rebuy some toiletries because I just don't have anything anymore. Um, and I think um, for me, it's it's changed the way I see reporting in terms of the information that I need as someone who's lost my home is totally different than the information that the general public might need. So um, for me, I mean, I'm hoping that that will help me ask better questions and figure out what we're what we actually need need in terms of information to like help the families going through this. Marina Riker, thanks so much for your time and our thoughts are with you and everyone affected by these wildfires. Thank you. The city. These people. <laughs> making the rest of us feel like we don't belong. But they know better than us. Look at how they treat their children. Mark my words, Mr. Resendez. If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. This week, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of San Francisco filed for bankruptcy protection. Here in California, it joins the Diocese of Oakland and the Diocese of Santa Rosa, which also filed for Chapter 11 protection earlier this year. And the Diocese of San Diego says it plans to file later this year. The church says these moves are because of an overwhelming number of claims of clergy sex abuse. Join me now is NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Hi, Jason. Hello. Okay, so three bankruptcy filings here in California alone within just a few months, another one likely on the way. What is going on here? Well, the short answer is the Me Too movement. Back in 2019, the California legislature passed a law that created a special window to bring older abuse claims outside the normal statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. Now, this window, which closed at the end of last year, was in response to the Me Too movement, and it provided an opportunity for older survivors of clergy sex abuse to bring claims, too. And similar windows were opened in several other states as well, including... New York and Louisiana. Okay, so survivors brought legal claims. 
a lot of claims. The Archdiocese of San Francisco says that it's now facing more than 500 civil suits alleging clergy sex abuse. And in a press release, the church says it's filing for Chapter 11 to halt the legal actions while it figures out how to pay for these abuse claims. As you know, bankruptcy is a way for the church to avoid more than 500 individual trials, which would be extremely expensive, and settlements are usually dramatically lower than what courts might award in in monetary damages. Mm -hmm. But critics of this move say because bankruptcy stops the legal discovery process, that means we may never know the full truth of what happened in these cases. Exactly. But let me ask you, Jason, it's been more than, what, two decades since stories broke about widespread clergy sex abuse within the Catholic Church. Why are we still hearing about it so many years later? Right. Remember, there was that grand jury abuse investigation report out of Illinois earlier this year. Mm -hmm. There was the one in Pennsylvania in 2018. The answer is the more investigations, the more discoveries of abuse. Mm -hmm. Now, the San Francisco Archdiocese says most of the claims brought recently are for abuse that allegedly took place more than 30 years ago and involved priests who were now dead or no longer in ministry. And the church says it mostly sees older abuse cases because it's put better safeguards in place. Wait, is that true? Are we seeing fewer cases of recent abuse? Well, now the advocacy group Child USA takes the church to task for relying on this idea that there are fewer recent cases of abuse. Because of something called delayed disclosure, the University of Pennsylvania professor Marcy Hamilton is founder and CEO of Child USA, and she says we'll have to wait decades to know about abuse happening to children today. Victims on average don't come forward until they are around 50 years old. So when the bishops are trying to say that this is all in the past, it's way behind us, and we have completely cleaned house. The truth is, that's a lie. Now, in a peer-reviewed study of abuse prevention measures in place around the country, Child USA found not one diocese scored above 50% compliance with best practices. Not one. Mm-hmm. Those are measures like never allowing a child to be alone in a room with an adult or thorough background checks on clergy. And findings like that mean that states like California might in the future again open a window to the statute of limitations so that abuse survivors ready to come forward then could try to seek some measure of justice. That is NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Thank you so much, Jason. You're welcome. Those people are living in hell in Baltimore. New twists in the ongoing sex abuse scandal inside the Baltimore Archdiocese. A judge orders the release of most of the redacted names in a scathing report. Hello, everybody. I'm Nikki Zizaza. And I'm Stefan Dingle. Welcome to those of you watching us on CBS News Baltimore and here on WJZ-TV. That report from the Attorney General's office identified dozens of abusers over several decades. Yes, now we're going to learn those names. Yeah, WJZ is live downtown outside the Archdiocese. Paul Gessler tells us when that will happen. Paul. Yes, Stefan, it'll be at least five weeks before a new report is released with 43 more names made public. April's Attorney General report identified 158 clergy and other church staff accused of abusing more than 600 victims. But dozens of names of accused abusers, enablers, or those who knew were redacted. 
In an order unsealed Tuesday, a Baltimore City judge ruled the attorney general can publish 43 of the 46 redacted names, including those of five top church officials and nine out of the 10 accused abusers. A new report is expected on or after September 26th. People in the pews will now see that, in fact, these guys were as complicit in this crime as the abusers. David Lorenz heads up Maryland SNAP, a group of abuse victims. He says unredacting names will further take burden off of survivors. When that name gets released and seen in public, it helps those individuals to come forward and seek help. Judge Robert Taylor said naming names is crucial toward knowing the scope of the report and called the abuse a slow motion crisis. Yeah, I might disagree with the slow motion. I, I, I think this was pretty in their face. Judge Taylor also wrote publicizing more names will help the public understand this did not happen because of anything the archdiocese did or did not do. It happened because of the choices made by specific individuals at specific times. I could not disagree with him more. The church policy was to protect the church and not the children. In a statement, the archdiocese wrote its foremost thought remains with survivors and said, in part, the attorney general's report is a reminder of a sad and deeply painful history tied to the tremendous harm caused to innocent children and young people by some ministers of the church. Now, those redacted in the report will have the opportunity in the coming weeks to make their case to the court to stay unnamed. One of those identified in the original report, the judge wrote, reports receiving death threats online for simply being affiliated with the archdiocese. Reporting live on Cathedral Street at 5, I'm Paul Gessler for WJZ. That's why we have to think as black people. Stop singing and dancing and start thinking. Thinking and reading. I say reading is more important than watching TV. Between 2019 and 2022, 30 states reported a decrease in students' reading test scores, including in Kansas and Missouri. And in the Kansas City region, 33% of kids in third grade, that's one in three, can't read at a basic level, meaning they're at least one grade level behind. Those percentages are higher among students of color, with 55% of black students and 44% of Hispanic and Latino students in the region reading at below basic rates, according to the Missouri Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. A lot of the recent decreases can be attributed to disruptions in learning from the pandemic, but literacy rates among kids have been dragging for years. Here to talk about how we can address the literacy crisis are three educators and advocates. They are Polly Hart. She's the executive director of Lead to Read. That's a nonprofit that helps provide reading support and instruction for students here in the Kansas City area. Polly, good to have you again. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Angelique Nedbed is the CEO and president of School Smart KC, which works to close the achievement gap in schools. Angelique, nice to have you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Shannon Reesby is a reading specialist at Crossroads Academy Quality Hill. She's been teaching for 21 years, and she's still here to talk about it. Shannon, good to have you. Good morning. Thank you. You know, these stat stats seem really bleak, Polly. 33% of students in our area can't read at a basic level. How did we get to this point in the first place? Well, as you said, <clears throat> we have been struggling with the reading scores and reading skills in Kansas City for a long time. And um, so the pandemic uh, absolutely exacerbated the problem. Um, school closures didn't help. Trying to teach kids wearing masks to read probably didn't help, um, and just the disruption of everyday life. So um, while 
we're not alone. It's a nationwide issue. Um, Kansas City is definitely struggling. And you use the word crisis. And that's the word I've been using to try to sound the alarms, because there's a lot of things we can do as a community to correct. You, you call it a crisis. Why? Well, literacy. That's poor, a big word. It is. Um, but poor literacy skills and um, children who can't read. That affects the whole community. These struggling readers are tomorrow's workforce. And if they are not skilled and able to um, productively participate in our community, well, we know what happens. So um, reading is the foundation for all other learning. Uh, as soon as they hit about fourth grade, about 85% of the curriculum is based on the ability to read. So children who are not reading by the end of third grade fall behind quickly, fall behind very quickly, and they, it becomes a downward spiral. Well, Angelique, as we mentioned, the problem dates back to before COVID. You know, reading test scores weren't amazing even before the pandemic. How long have students been struggling to read? I think we'll always have students struggling to read because we all come into that skill set differently yeah. and we need to address it with uh, very specific strategies. So uh, addressing the need to read and providing skills and literacy will always be the task at hand mm -hmm. and making sure that that is a skill that our students acquire and do so successfully. So to Polly's point, this is not a new phenomenon. This is um, a crisis and uh, we need to address it now. I suppose if I asked why there's a crisis here and why kids can't read at grade level, as Polly has suggested, there's a lot of reasons here, right? A lot of factors play into this. Lots and lots of reasons. Uh, access to literature, <clears throat> language development, there may be students that have learning disabilities or they learn differently. So that all comes into play when we're sitting down working with our youth to learn how to read. And sometimes that becomes the first diagnosis or uh, the first recognition of a challenge going into literacy. And I suppose some kids are embarrassed and that doesn't help the problem either, does it? Correct. And uh, it's a very social skill as well. Uh, you know, reading impacts all areas of our life. So it, it becomes uh, somewhat embarrassing if you're in a crowd or you're in public and your right. literacy skills are put on display. You know, Shannon, just to be clear here, when we talk about this notion that students can't read at a basic level, we're talking about what? Um, many students in the upper grades are not able to read at a minimum first grade level. Wow. Just that simple. Yeah. I can't help but wonder, you spent many years in a first grade classroom and now you're a reading specialist. What's the process of kids learning to read? What, can you summarize that in any quick way? Um, you have to hit all five components of reading. There are phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. What was the first one again? Phonemic awareness. That's well, the that's ability a, that's to... That's a $10 word, yeah. <laughs> it's the ability to hear and identify and manipulate phonemes or sounds. I gotcha. Within words. And that is one of the strongest predictors of whether students are... Um, of their reading success. Mm -hmm. And many of our teachers come out of colleges and universities not knowing very much about phonemic awareness. And so we have to do better on sharing that knowledge and teaching these teachers how to um, test for phonemic awareness. You have fourth and fifth graders that can't read. You've got to figure out where's the hole at. 
And so if we can find out where what their need is, that's what we can teach towards. So you're saying we have teachers in the classrooms who are walking in for the first time coming out of college and bottom line, they don't really know how to teach reading in the way they need to teach reading. 100%. And that's a problem. It's a huge problem. And everyone's nodding your head here, Polly. How big of a problem is that? Well, um, first of all, being a first-year teacher is challenging in itself. And then to um, walk in and realize that you don't have the full skill set um, to address all of the varied needs of children. Um, because these kids are all coming in at different levels and different abilities. There may be a lot of reading going on at, at some point children's homes and then none at another you will have in many of our schools multiple languages going on as well so yeah these um i i went into teaching a little later in life and i was really surprised at how i did not feel that i had been taught how to teach children to read um a lot of it was kind of innate or organic with me because right. i was a mother and i had already taught my kids to read um, at home just because it seemed logical to me to sound out words. And I do want to say that there's a lot of words that 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 we're throwing around. And um, but the bottom line is parents and caregivers can do a lot at home before children even enter school and then to support the child at school. Um, kids and people have been learning to read for thousands of years, I think. And so um, the basic sounding out of letters and sounding out of words is something that can happen very early on um, with families. Um, they can um, encourage children to read at home and have books in the home. Like Angelique said, um, access to books is, is one of the challenges. Yeah. But just everyday things that parents and guardians can do, talking to your children and using um, language around right. them helps develop their vocabulary. And, um, and then making reading a habit in your home um, once a day, 15 minutes a day, um, is, it, it's powerful. And so I always say, Get that routine early. You know, maybe it's bath, uh, bath book bed, and yeah. those kids do that every night. Or if um, evening isn't a great time for your family, do a breakfast book. You know, Angelique, <laughs> what, what strikes me is a little bit discouraging about this. The, the suggestions that Polly made, great ones. I knew them as a young parent. But these ideas have been around forever, and yet here we are still talking about this idea that our kids can't read. The idea of reading to your kid at home, to talking to your kid, I mean, those ideas are sort of, at least in my world, universal among parents, but maybe it's not so universal after all. I think it can be universal, but where I think we step in with the largest amount of support is in our school systems. Um, learning to read is not a natural process like learning a language. So it's about um, breaking the code. And our students will get to that point of being able to break the code at different times. So it's learning about in certain combinations of letters, like Shannon said, but Teaching young kids how to crack the code, teaching systemic phonics is and the light bulb goes out and most goes off and suddenly right, they're off and most running. Most reliable way and versus picking out what you love to read and making a guess, those aren't transferable skills then to words you've never seen before. So it really is making sure those strategies are instilled in our students. Now, is there a pattern, Shannon, here as to when and how kids wind up struggling to read proficiently? I mean, do you, can you tell early on that a certain child is going to struggle? You can tell as early as five years old. Really? Mm -hmm. And you see what? Um, 
basically I would give them a test on um, and on their phonemic awareness um, from the get-go. There's a some other tests that you can give as well and um, find out if they're going to be struggling in reading. And that, that test would, would ask a kid to do what? Just put it in layman's terms so I can hang on to that. Um, like sound out a certain word maybe or uh, – that would be that would be one of your tests. Um, yeah. You know, f for example, uh, you know, it's, it's, what's the beginning sound in in date? Okay. Um, yeah. Those types of things, and um, there's many layers to it, but um, just quickly, you can quickly find out in a, a couple minutes tests. Yeah, Angelique, I'm also struck by this idea uh, that uh, students are speaking different languages mm -hmm. in our classrooms mm -hmm. these days. And for the love of Pete, we talk about that in here a lot, how teachers manage that when you've got five or six languages in a classroom. I don't know how that happens, but that certainly is a complicating factor here. It is, and it's certainly not a deficit. So we have children who are linguistically brilliant because they come in with more than one language. Mm -hmm. And ensuring that they get the beginning skills of learning English is all that more important. So they may be able to read in their home language, but uh, being able to navigate through school here requires that ability to then code switch over into English. And to That's build, asking a lot of a it, kid, it, isn't it? And it's, yeah, it's asking a lot of our, our adults too. So when we have the ability to translate or those additional supports in the classroom for our teachers and back to Polly's point, you know, our, our new teachers coming into the classroom may not have been prepared for that in their prep programs at university. So it's being very purposeful and strategic with the phonemic awareness and to build off Shannon's point, you take a, a word like fat and you break it down to the syllables. You have f at. Mm -hmm. You know that it's sticking with the child if then you show them fun and they can get that first letter sound. If they can uh, transfer yeah. the understanding of f, f, f as, yeah. as an F into a different word. And now you know they're using their strategies instead of just guessing. Black people, you know, think like, like you know, like kids playing cowboy out in the street. That's no different. That's really what the level of thinking that we have, you know, like 10-year-olds, even when we are 30 years old, all out there in the middle of the street, bang, 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 fall down, you're dead. As another year of escalating homicides results in more conversations about guns and gun violence, KCUR's Laura Ziegler sat down with some black women who have decided to protect themselves by buying guns. A warning. This piece has the sound of shots being fired. Rashawn Brown recently welcomed me into R&A Accessories. Laura? I'm Laura. A small firearms and self-defense accessory shop she owns with her husband at 79th and Troost. Brown is a 40-year-old black woman, the mother of seven. During the day, she works as a construction company project manager, and in her off time, she organizes the Black Women of Pretty Pistol Posse, a group of about a dozen mothers, wives, and professionals who got together during the pandemic. She's invited a few of them to tell me their stories. The girls are on their way. It'll be three of us. Brown Shop doesn't sell firearms, but the small black pistol resting in a crossbody holster on her hip lets you know she's not only an owner, but open carries when she can. Because when I was growing up, I never saw a black woman or man out in public with a gun. 
unless they were a criminal. And that if you see a person that you know, may know is not a bad person carrying a gun, it may open your mind. In glossy pink lipstick and three-inch long hot pink fingernails, she says the women of the posse came together after she and some friends posted pictures of themselves at a shooting range. Alicia Olatunde says she'd never owned a gun before she joined the group, but has relatives who've been fatally shot. She says high unemployment during COVID-19 and racial unrest following the murder of George Floyd made black communities especially vulnerable and scared. According to industry statistics, gun purchases by black women increased almost 90 percent in the first half of 2021. And so everybody just was like, oh, no, I'm a fight. And if I'm a, if I'm a fight, I'm a fight with a gun because they want to protect what's theirs, whether that be family or home or whatever. Ola Tunde, a licensed professional counselor, recognizes that mental health plays a role in escalating violence and has become an advocate not only for more mental health resources, but tougher regulation on some firearms like assault-style weapons. As a gun owner, as also as someone who sees people with a wide array of mental health issues, I feel like laws, or restrictions rather, Taking that into consideration is important. She is skeptical of the traditionally white male gun lobby, which she believes has put politics over people and inflamed the already controversial gun issue. Who's going to shoot today? Who's going to shoot today? I need that. Across town in Raytown, members of the Kansas City chapter of the National African American Gun Association are in the lobby of Blue Steel Guns and Ammo with noise-reducing headphones cocked on their heads waiting to get down to the range. Members of the group say they have a mixture of political leanings, but they see gun ownership as a constitutional right denied black people over centuries of brutality and killing. Suave Estelle is one of 30 women in the chapter. She grew up in a hunting family and says she bought a gun in 2018 to start hunting herself. But black women, she says, are vulnerable because of race and gender, and she joined the Black Gun Owners Association to get trained on how to safely protect herself and her property. Not only will just the sight of the gun can frighten the men, um, the fact that I'm holding it with stands and, and education and they confidence, they see she knows how to use it. I'm not going to just be able to take that from her. I met Latasha Jacob outside some midtown shops recently. She helped found Pretty Pistol Posse, but left to the group to lobby for more social services for her community. She's also a Second Amendment advocate and a gun owner, but she says you can't talk about gun rights without also addressing the outsized impact of violence on disadvantaged communities. Most of the crime happens within the urban core because that is where people feel as though they have no other avenue than to do harm to someone else to protect themselves because they don't have other resources that they can truly lean into. Jacob will join Missouri gun lobbyists when they go talk to legislators this fall. As black women who've armed themselves, they are uniquely qualified to remind politicians there are ways to reduce gun violence that don't have anything to do with guns. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Laura Ziegler. About as funny as a lynching. Oh, hush, boy, you ain't even see it. I've never seen a lynching either, but I know they're not funny. See, shows what you know. I've seen funny lynchings. No, you haven't. I have so. Roscoe Patterson's lynching was funny. Yeah, so them niggas was like, Roscoe, you better leave time for Mr. Charlie and them crackers gonna fall for you. I'm like, man, fuck these crackers, man. It's Roscoe Patterson. Nigga, I don't give a fuck. I just don't give a fuck. You know what I'm saying? White man can eat a dick. Eat my balls, nigga. There he is. Get that nigger. Oh. Hi, hi, hi. Come on, let's there go. Oh, geez, he's he's Watch out. It uh, wasn't really funny after that.
Mm-mm. Pierce City, a town of about 1,277 people just northwest of Monette, once had a sizable African-American population. Murray Bischoff, a writer and longtime reporter for the Monette Times, says the black residents trace their roots to Judah Godley, who was brought to the area as a slave in 1848, along with her five children, the property of Mary Godley Jameson and her husband Achilles. But that all changed in 1901. The entire story and backstory of what happened on August 19th of that year takes more time to tell than is allowed on this radio show. To keep it brief, Bischoff says a young woman, 24-year-old Gisela Wild, was assaulted and murdered the day before in a culvert under railroad tracks in Pier City, and black men were blamed. A lack of evidence directed people towards suspecting African Americans and the town was whipped up into a frenzy over the next uh, 35 hours and uh, ultimately resulted in, in, in a five-hour riot uh, against people who had lived here since the earliest days of the town. Town residents formed a mob and they were joined by many more people who had heard the news of the murder and who departed from trains going through Pierce City. When the night of August 19, 1901 had turned to dawn the next day, three black men were dead. One was 32-year-old Will Godley. His neck was tied with a rope, and he was pushed by white men from a second-story balcony that stood above the entrance of the Hotel Lawrence, a commercial in Walnut. When Godley went over the railing, other white men on the ground below fired multiple bullets into him. Two other black men, Pete Hampton, who was believed to be in his 30s, and 70-year-old French Godley were killed when white men fired into a house and then burned it down. Other black-owned homes were burned that night as well. Pierce City's black residents fled the city, never to return. This was the one place where they actually forced an established black community to leave. Bischoff says there were five lynchings in and around southwest Missouri in a period of 12 years. The first one was in Monette in 1894. Then there were others in Pierce City and Joplin, as well as Pittsburgh, Kansas. The last was in Springfield in 1906. He says they largely caused the black community to abandon the area. Bischoff has been writing about the lynching in Pierce City since the early 1990s, and he says it's become a personal story for him. He continues to search for photos and artifacts and people who might have information that's never been recorded. And I started coming to this spot and lighting a candle about 30 years ago, just because. And when my wife moved here in 97, she started coming with me. And every now and then I'd have somebody come along. In 2001, for the centennial of the riot, he held a public presentation where he read a couple of chapters from an historical novel he wrote about the incident that he's never sought to have published. In the last decade or so, he says he's been more public about the candlelight vigil. Bischoff says for a long time he was nervous about letting anyone know about the annual event. According to Bischoff, some area residents haven't been very happy about him telling the story. There's some collective feeling of guilt, which a hundred years later, it's like, why? But, but there's, there's some discomfort there. And, and I've always been a little reluctant to be terribly verbal about it. And uh, after a certain point, it's like, oh, what the heck? Well, we'll, we, every town that has had an incident of this nature needs to talk about it. He says it's important to remind people about the lynching so they can try to understand why these things happen and so they can do better. 
Just before the candlelight vigil began on Saturday night in downtown Pierce City in front of City Hall, a black man approached Bischoff and introduced himself. He was Selwyn Jones, the uncle of George Floyd, who was killed by a Minneapolis police officer in May of 2020. Jones says his nephew's death wasn't in vain. Because of it, he now travels the country talking to people about Floyd's murder and about race relations, things that are often uncomfortable to talk about. He says he wanted to be at the vigil to show respect for those who died and to be there for progress. Because the things that happened hundreds of years ago, we obviously can't do anything about. But thank for people like him was sort of kind of changing that narrative of how things used to be. And granted, things, things could get better, but with young people like this in the world that are trying to make them better, uh, they will get better, you know? Jones produces a podcast with Harrison, Arkansas City Councilperson Elizabeth Darden, and they heard about the vigil from Darden's mother. Darden says it was an honor to be there and to commemorate individuals who were lynched and falsely accused of something they didn't do because of the color of their skin. And it's important for us to be here because that's what we do. We travel around the country. People seek out Uncle Selwyn for solace to overcome tragedies because their families have been impacted by police brutality and it's about continuing the conversation to educate one another and that's very important. Jones says when he heard about the event in Pier City he knew he had to be there to try to make a difference. You know there's a lot of people that that have trauma and disarray uh, from the colors of one's skin from their religion and we just set out on the road to show people we're all the same. We're absolutely all the same. We are of the human race. And we can combat this because for three days, everybody in the world, with the exception of a couple places, stood up and hollered my big sister's baby boy's name, you know, because it made everybody open their eyes and say, wow, just like Mr. Murray's opening eyes right here. So that's the reason why I'm here. So friends, Thank you for coming and let us hold our candles in a moment of silence and remembrance for those who have gone before us, those who fell on this night and those whose memory we cherish by coming together to hear their story. Bischoff will continue to host the vigil as long as he can. The tornado that roared through downtown Pierce City in May of 2003 didn't stop him. He says he and his wife, Joy, had to sneak in to get to the site. There were no lights, and the old buildings, whose walls are full of history, both good and bad, were creaking as they stood there. For KSMU News, I'm Michelle Skaliski. You dirt. We think you're dirt. Who is we? The West, all the superpowers, everything you believe in, Paul. They think you're dirt, they think you're dumb, you're worthless. I'm afraid I don't understand what you are saying, sir. Oh, come on, don't bullshit me, Paul. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You could own this freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. African. 
Every year, tens of thousands of people attempt the perilous journey from the Horn of Africa to Yemen and then Saudi Arabia. Many do not make it. According to Human Rights Watch, hundreds of them, many Ethiopians, have been gunned down by Saudi security forces on the border with Yemen. The Human Rights Organization has documented evidence which suggests that the killings have been systematic. Saudi Arabia has denied the claims first made by UN experts last October. Our diplomatic correspondent Paul Adams has been hearing from migrants who tried to reach Saudi Arabia. On the steep, rocky slopes of Yemen's northern mountains, migrants are on the move. Long lines of men and women, almost all of them Ethiopian, scrambling their way towards the nearby border with Saudi Arabia, escaping poverty and war at home in search of opportunity. But gunfire reverberates across the slopes and through the valleys. The journey ahead is fraught with danger. We were shot and beaten at the Saudi border, and those who shot us were Saudi men. They wore Saudi Arabia's military uniform. A man we're calling Ibsa describes a terrifying night at the border. He's still in Yemen, so he doesn't want us to use his real name. They beat us, killed some, took those who survived to hospital. The bodies of those killed were left scattered on the ground. I was the only one who survived. They took me to a hospital where a bullet was taken out of my body. I was shot between my thighs, near my groin, and my legs are paralyzed now. I can't even walk. At that moment, I thought I would die. For two years, stories like this have become almost routine. The world, perhaps a little bored by Yemen's endless tales of war and famine, has somehow not taken much notice. That might be about to change. So at Human Rights Watch, what we documented are essentially mass killings. Nadia Hardman is the lead author of the report published today. Saudi border guards have fired explosive weapons and shot migrants and asylum seekers at close range on their international border with Yemen. The majority of people told me that their groups were women and children and described sites that sound like killing fields. And if there's a deliberate policy of murder, they would amount to a crime against humanity. Describe to us what kinds of things you have seen in these videos you've been collecting. The footage is horrifying. It really is. And mostly it's the guilt that people feel watching the people they've tried to cross with die in front of them and having to run away because they're running for their lives. Survivors of these horrors show deep signs of trauma. In Sana'a, Yemen's capital, a young woman we're calling Zahra can barely bring herself to speak about what happened at the border. Her journey through Yemen, which had already cost almost £2,000 in ransoms and bribes to smugglers, ended in a hail of gunfire. One bullet took all the fingers of her right hand. Asked about the injury, she looks away and cannot answer. Some of those who don't make it across the border end up back where they started, in Ethiopia. Mustafa Sufia Mohammed is one of them, at home now, still getting used to walking with a prosthetic left leg. He shows us a video taken just after he arrived in hospital in July last year. His foot has been severed. He's in agony. He says he was hit by some kind of rocket. We got shot at while we were walking. Immediately, we all lie down on the ground. I didn't even realize I was shot. But when I tried to get up and walk, part of my leg wasn't there. The shooting went on and on and on. I hid behind a rock to save my life. 
I know it's economic hardships that made me leave, but I do regret it. I always wonder why I made such a fit attempting to improve my life. Ethiopian migrants are still dying on the Saudi border. In a cemetery in the northern Yemeni city of Saada, one was buried two weeks ago. Others with terrible injuries are being treated in local hospitals. Why these killings are taking place isn't clear. When allegations were first raised by the UN last year, the Saudi government denied that anything systematic was going on. It hasn't yet replied to us or to Human Rights Watch. That report by Paul Adams. Here you see James Craig Anderson in a hotel parking lot as he first comes into view in the lower right corner of the screen. This is after he was beaten, according to law enforcement officials. He staggers into the headlights of Mr. Deadman's truck. The truck backs up and surges forward suddenly, running right over the defenseless man. Take a look again as the approaching headlights glow on Anderson's shirt, then disappears under the truck. According to police, Deadman, with two teenage girls as his passengers, drove to a local McDonald's meeting up with the rest of the group. There, according to witnesses interviewed by police, he said, I ran that nigger over. We start with a WSB Tonight exclusive, a case of road rage that was captured on video and has actually gone viral. The video shows a man getting out of his car and screaming racial slurs at a driver. It happened on Interstate 285, right past the North Lake Mall exit into Cap County. That's where Channel 2's Larry Spruill is right now live. And Larry, you're the only local television reporter to talk to this victim. Yeah, and Karen, that man is sharing his story for the very first time since all of this happened. He tells me that he was heading home on 285 that day when two men pulled up in a work van and blocked him off. He tells me one of those men opened up his door, got out of the car, and started threatening him. This is the moment Avery, who did not want to show his face or use his last name for safety reasons, says he pulled out his phone and started recording the man he says started threatening him. Two guys in the van uh, started flicking me off, yelling and screaming at me. And then they pulled on the side of me and started threatening me to get out the car and fight. How did he get to that point? I honestly don't know. I have no clue of me cutting them off. According to this police report, this happened Wednesday, August 16th on Interstate 285 northbound between Lawrenceville Highway and La Vista Road. In the video, you can see the man get out of the van and walk towards Avery. What they say on your shirt? What they say on my shirt? It says, F you. Okay. He then goes back to the van and takes off what appears to be his work shirt and comes back towards Avery. The whole time, Avery says he just kept calm while still recording. I seen he had a work company shirt on, so I felt like we'll get him in the end. So they followed me to one exit. I swerved back on. They kept following me to the next exit. At the next exit, they actually blocked me in. The guy got out the car and started threatening me, uh, calling me the N-word, using racial slurs. Yo, you scary yeah, homeboy, get out! When he said the, the, the N-word with the E-R on it, uh, that kind of blew me. But, but Avery said he remained calm because he's getting married soon and he's an educator. Felt like I did the right thing. I got to live to see another day. And Channel 2's Larry Spruill joins us back live. Larry, we know police are actually investigating this case. Have they identified this guy seen in the video? 
Yeah, well, Karen, they're still looking for that man in that video. We do know that he was in a work van, and there was a Texas license plate on the back of it. Karen? All right, Larry Sproul, thank you. For WAMC, I'm Josh Landis. Berkshire County police officers are included in a disciplinary records database released by the Massachusetts Peace Officers Standards and Training Commission this week. The Post Commission was established by the legislature in 2020 with a stated mission to, quote, improve policing and enhance public confidence in law enforcement by implementing a fair process for mandatory certification, discipline, and training for all peace officers in the Commonwealth, end quote. Earlier in 2023, the commission released a report on the certification status of Massachusetts police officers, identifying whether they meet the criteria to serve in the Commonwealth, including whether they are currently suspended. The disciplinary records database is by no means a complete representation of police misconduct, as it relies on self-reporting by individual departments and is subject to redaction. Some Berkshire communities, including Great Barrington, Dalton, and others, did not contribute a single misconduct report to the database. The Pittsfield Police Department, the largest department in Berkshire County, has 17 officers in the database, including one of its most visible representatives, Officer Darren Derby. Derby regularly posts updates about his community outreach work in the city to his Facebook page and his 175,000 followers. The Post Commission database shows that he was disciplined for, quote, improper seizure of cell phone, improper dissemination of official information, improper search of cell phone, and illegal seizure of person and cell phone. End quote. Stemming from a January 19, 2022 incident, Derby received just a written reprimand for what the report categorizes as multiple acts of misconduct and outright criminal conduct. Yes, we have some police officers who have had to be disciplined, and I think that you can see that the department has taken that serious over the years that are included in this report. So, again, I feel that um, our department is in good standing and that we take seriously misconduct, that misconduct is investigated and discipline is administered depending upon the outcome of that investigation. Mayor Linda Tyre. Discipline is progressive. And so, for example, you might see a disciplinary determination that includes a written reprimand. It may be that it is the first time that this police officer has been involved in some form of misconduct. And then, as you can see, the, the discipline progresses over time with each incident. And in some cases, misconduct has resulted in termination. Only one of the 17 PPD officers in the database was terminated for misconduct. Robert Horn, found to have lied to investigators, gambled, associated with known criminals, and visited, quote, prohibited establishments, end quote, was let go from the force in 2012. The most recent serious disciplinary action taken beyond written reprimands or retraining concerns Officer Stephen Hacker. The database categorizes his misconduct as, quote, criminal conduct, other criminal conduct, truthfulness or professional integrity, other form of untruthfulness, other misconduct, other conduct unbecoming, other misconduct, improper firearm usage or storage, end quote. 
The details are redacted, but it notes that he was charged with a misdemeanor. Hacker received a suspension of over 30 days for the incident and is on active duty on the force today. When reached by WAMC, Pittsfield police said Interim Chief Thomas Dolly was unavailable for comment on the department's showing in the records. Only one officer from North Adams, the Berkshire's second largest community, is included in the database. Officer Eric Thomas received one to five day suspensions in 2021 and 2022 for first neglect of duty and then excessive use of force. Perhaps the most remarkable Berkshire entry is that of Sheffield police officer Matthew O'Sullivan, who has racked up eight separate misconduct incidents in the database since 2017. Despite receiving termination or similar discipline for his first infraction, in which he apparently admitted to violating use of force standards over the course of duty, he has since gone on to receive various retrainings, suspensions, and written warnings for a battery of offenses. Those include excessive unwarranted pat frisks, questionable motor vehicle stops, use of the N-word, lies to investigators and superiors in reports, and unlawful detention. A December 2022 investigative report by independent journalist Andrew Quimer details the 11 internal probes, lawsuits, and criminal investigations O'Sullivan has been the subject of over his career. In 2021, then-District Attorney Andrea Harrington included him on a list of police officers whose credibility is too questionable to rely on in court. In 2020, O'Sullivan was found by Harrington to have filed a false police report while working in Agramont in an incident where a woman was knocked unconscious while in police custody. Despite the officer blaming the woman for her injury, video shows her hitting her head while being forced into a cruiser by police. Before his prolific Berkshire County career, O'Sullivan resigned from the Shirley Police Department for kicking a man in the groin while he was in police custody. When reached by WAMC, the Sheffield PD said it was unavailable to comment until Chief Eric Munson returned from vacation next week. You can find the database at WAMC.org. Reporting from the WAMC News, Berkshire Bureau at the Beacon Cinema, I'm Josh Landis. Well, I don't want to be the one to break your heart, but sunshine from California. Yeah, a California dreamboat. No. Sunshine is from California. Yeah, he's a Californian. Hi there. Yeah, we've seen several developments, new developments on this just within the past 24 hours. First, it was that potentially damning report by the L.A. Times. And now we've heard from LAPD Chief Michael Moore, as well as L.A. Mayor Karen Bass. And now we're learning that the FBI is starting to investigate. So this involves officers accused of intentionally not turning on their body cameras during traffic stops. So here's what we know so far. According to the LAPD, this involves at least two officers from the Mission Area Gang Enforcement Detail in the San Fernando Valley. The department received a complaint about a man who was stopped by two officers and that uh, his vehicle was searched without consent before he was later released without incident. The details on what actually happened during that stop are unclear. That complaint triggered an investigation by the Internal Affairs Division and a review determined that the officers had not properly documented the stop or activated their body-worn cameras, which is required. This investigation led to similar undocumented incidents by other members of the division who failed to activate their body cameras. We know that some members of the area's gang enforcement detail have been placed on administrative leave, but so far we don't know how many. The LA Times also reporting that through their sources that in a rare move last Thursday, investigators searched the lockers of some of the officers included in that search warrant. Now, a short time ago, we spoke to one community advocate who has been at the forefront of social justice and police reform locally. She says this is a step back for
for the agency that has been working to rectify its reputation from past incidents of misconduct. My belief is that, again, if there's two, there's four, there's eight, there's 16, there are probably a lot more folks in the department who are doing this. Hopefully this investigation will help uncover it. I think what's going to be really important for Chief Moore is that, you know, once these investigations are concluded and if it's found that there has been wrongdoing, that these officers are disciplined and not just given a slap on the wrist. Now, again, officials are not releasing details about what exactly happened during that initial traffic stop. But again, it has led to an investigation with more members of the same gang unit. And now we know that the FBI has started their own investigation. I reached out to the FBI's Los Angeles office and I'm waiting for a response. In the meantime, Chief Michael Moore released this statement saying in part, consequences for any member who would purposely avoid our requirements will be certain and severe. Such misconduct undermines the public's trust and tarnishes the badge of the vast majority of officers who conduct themselves with integrity and reverence for the law. And L.A. Mayor Karen Bass also released his statement saying in part, I have been briefed on this incident and what I've been told is very disturbing. Instances like this can erode confidence and trust in our police department. Under, under my administration, transparency and accountability is required. I'm encouraged by the leadership of LAPD taking an aggressive posture towards this investigation to ensure Angelinos are being served with fairness and integrity. Now back out here live, I did reach out to the LA County District Attorney and they have confirmed that so far, no charges have been filed related to this investigation. Reporting live from LA, I'm Shelby Nelson, KTLA 5 News. For too many American women, giving birth can be deadly. The U.S. has the highest rate of maternal mortality among developed nations. Over 1,200 women died of maternal causes in 2021 alone. But for some, the risk is even higher. Black women are three times as likely to die from labor complications. Amna Nawaz reports on the people who are working to help them have safer pregnancies. Hi. Hi, how are you today? Good. Dr. Doe Katessa is on a mission. Take a look at what your blood pressure was today. The obstetrician gynecologist is an attending physician at the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore. I went into medicine to improve health. And so when you see disparities, uh, I want to make it better. Particularly as a black woman, um, this is something that is near and dear to my heart. More than 60% of the city's population is black, which Dr. Katessa says plays a crucial role in the quality of prenatal and postpartum care black women often receive. So I think race plays a couple of factors. They have less access to um, quality education um, because of issues like redlining, for example, that historically has been present in the United States, particularly in Baltimore. It affects housing, it affects income, um, and that is going to impact their health outcomes in terms of access to care. Another critical component she's seen in the health care system, patients not being heard and their pain dismissed. 
what ends up happening is black women feel that their concerns are not listened to or when they come in in labor their pain is dismissed or when they come in just with a complaint of pain that it might not be fully evaluated um, that it's explained away from other reasons rather than being listened to and fully evaluated. They were relatively dismissive of what I was saying. They were saying, well, fibroids are common. Crystal Carter Ward struggled to get doctors to take her concerns seriously when she had trouble trying to conceive. They were seeing, you know, just a patient based on whatever demographic I fit in. And because fibroids are, are higher for African-American women and lots of women do conceive with them. Research has found that by the age of 50, 80 percent of black women are likely to have fibroids. What I've learned is, you know, sometimes fibroids can impact uh, your ability to conceive and other times it can't. So Dr. Katessa, who I worked with um, here at university, um, was able to help me identify that as a potential issue. And that's what I really liked. It felt like a decision that, you know, I was very much in charge of. and. After I had the fibroids removed, I was able to conceive twins. But black women are at higher risk for other health complications as well. Black people have higher rates of high blood pressure. In pregnancy, high blood pressure can manifest as preeclampsia, which is a disease of pregnancy, which there are higher rates in black women, diabetes in pregnancy. And it's not something inherently about black people that or genetically that causes them to have these conditions more. Um, with fibroids, we don't necessarily really know why. Some of the ideas about things like diabetes and high blood pressure is this idea of weathering, that the chronic stress of racism over time is, is changing our bodies at the cellular level. Despite growing awareness of these issues and medical advancements over time, the numbers of black women dying in childbirth have continued to climb. A long-term study out this summer showed that the largest jump in deaths was among American Indian and Alaskan Native mothers and that the maternal mortality rate in the U.S. more than doubled with black mothers. The nurse on labor and delivery tells you um, to describe your pain. You start crying, telling her exactly how much pain you were in, and she tells you to shut up because she's typing. Black women like Mary Catherine have been sharing their stories on TikTok and other platforms to raise awareness and create a community of support. Just please help you because you feel like you're you're dying. Um, she tells you that she feels like you're faking for pain medicine. I think that these stories tell us that this crisis is real. Journalist Elaine Welteroth had her own bad experiences while pregnant, even early on during routine checkups. You talked about going doctor to doctor, trying to feel safe and to feel heard. Give us a sense of what you were running into. I had a doctor interrupt me um, in the middle of a question, telling, closing her laptop, standing up and walking out of the room to tell me and, and told me on the way out that I was asking too many questions and it, and it made me feel incredibly small and belittled. She eventually sought support from a black owned birthing center, working with a midwife and doula to deliver her son. We are living in a maternal health crisis in this country and across the world. Welteroth now uses her platform to advocate for change and hopefully save lives. I shouldn't feel like one of the lucky ones because I survived my birth experience in the richest country in the world, um, but I do.
But experts worry for women already at higher risk during pregnancy, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade could be potentially more deadly. What kind of impact do you think that the Dobbs decision, the overturning of that, could have on maternal mortality? I think it's only going to be worsened by the Dobbs decision. So I think that in those states in which individuals are sort of having to carry pregnancies that they either did not desire to carry or really, you know, their clinicians thought that they were not healthy enough to carry, that's only going to exacerbate the inequities that we've seen in severe maternal morbidity as well as mortality. After years on the front lines of the fight to save lives, Dr. Katessa is now preparing the next generation of doctors to carry forward her work. We should be appalled by anyone dying in pregnancy. My mission as an OBGYN and, and being an educator is I want to fundamentally change how we provide care to black women, how we provide care to other women from marginalized communities, um, and, and addressing a lot of these issues that we've talked about related to unconscious bias, related to structural racism, related to trust, related to recognizing patients' humanity. Crystal Carter Word, meanwhile, is settling into motherhood. I'm learning something new every day. Um, I'm learning that I'm not actually in charge. I can make a schedule, I can make a plan, but uh, my girls are, are really the ones who are gonna dictate how the day is going to go. It's been exciting, it's been joyful, um, and it's been exhausting. <laughs> I was given the tools I needed to help keep myself and my baby safe. Grateful, she says, for the support of her doctor that brought her to this moment. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar trying to make up our Razudocs what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold Milk Plus, Milk Plus Velocet, or Synthamesque, or Drencrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. Such a case always leaves many troubling questions, most potently, of course, why? Why would any human being do this? And if that is a question we may never get an answer to, there are other more immediate ones that we must try to grapple with. Chiefly, how do we build in further safeguards to the system? Anyone watching on Friday night after Lucy Letby was found guilty will not have forgotten Paul's interview with Dr Ravi Jayaram, one of the neonatal consultants who first realised she was killing their defenceless patients. His attempts to stop her were thwarted by managers, as Dr Jayaram points out to Paul tonight. There are disciplinary bodies for doctors and nurses, but not for senior health service managers. Lucy Letby took seven lives on this ward, but today's justice wasn't only for the dead but for those left living with what they'd witnessed, like Dr Ravi Jayaram. It is absolutely correct that she's put in prison for life without any, any chance of release for the crimes that she's committed. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that the parents of these babies and their families will never get back what's been taken away from them. And it's made me angry that she hasn't had the courage to be there to face up to them. 
Neither have his former bosses at the hospital, in his opinion, whose statements since the verdict have said plenty, apart from sorry for their part. There have been opportunities for those people who are at the top of the Countess of Chester to be able to put their hands up and admit that they got it wrong. And this is what's incensed me more than anything. They are still trying to find reasons why what they did was the right thing. You know, for example, one of them said, oh, well, we weren't loud enough in expressing our concerns. How much louder could we be? We were loud enough for you to try and vilify us and smear us and drive some of us to the point of applying for jobs in other hospitals. When the first three babies died in June 2015, within a month, doctors had raised concerns and noted Lucy Letby's presence. They spent 18 months pleading with managers to investigate her, but claimed they were told to draw a line under it. And by the time police were finally called, four more babies had been murdered, multiple others had been attacked. Only the director of nursing, Alison Kelly, has faced consequences. Today she was suspended from her new job in another trust. The medical director back then, Ian Harvey, who told doctors there was no smoking gun, was able to retire to France. The head of nursing, Karen Reese, also retired. She says doctors didn't give her enough information to remove Lucy Letby from the ward. And the chief executive at the time, Tony Chambers, has since worked elsewhere in the NHS. Well, I've got two pledges to make. This was Mr Chambers a year before Letby's murders. I pledge to support a culture where the frontline staff are supported in raising concerns. Dr Jayaram wants change to hold NHS bosses to their word. If there is a dodgy doctor or a dodgy nurse, there is a means for them to be found out and sanctioned. As far as I can tell, for people in senior NHS management positions, there is no robust system of accountability or appraisal. This is the culture in the NHS and it has to change. The promised inquiry is supposed to help achieve that. How do you feel about this inquiry not potentially having the ability to compel witnesses to give evidence? There have been other inquiries into NHS scandals which have been statutory full public inquiries. Why on earth would this be announced as a non-statutory inquiry? Well, the Prime Minister argues it'll be much quicker. Is the priority speed? I would much rather have an inquiry that asked the right questions and took as much time as it needed to get the right answers. The families and the police have both said to us that they consider you to be a hero. Do you think the enormity of the part you played in all of this has sunk in yet? I'm not here, Paul. I was just doing my job. It's my job to look after babies and children. If any meaningful change about how the NHS reacts and responds to serious and even relatively minor patient safety concerns changes as a consequence of all of this, then I might possibly consider that I've done something heroic. Right now, I just think that I've done what I should have done. Uh, and Paul is here to talk about this. Look, Dr. Jayaram was talking there about, you know, disappointment that Lucy Letby, parents clearly desperately disappointed that Lucy Letby was not brought out of her cell. What can realistically be done in these situations? 
It's on the principle here, of course, is that justice should be seen to be done, unless, of course, you're offender, an offender and you sit in your cell and you don't have to listen to your own sentencing. And today the Prime Minister agreed that that was cowardly in his words. He said he does want to change the law. They've been promising this for a while. Labour also want to change the law. Of course, there have been other high-profile cases in recent years of offenders who've done this too. But it is difficult. It's not straightforward. The way the law works at the moment is that a judge can order an offender to go to court, but he can't sort of compel them to go to court. And prison officers can use reasonable force to take an offender to court. But again, you don't necessarily want to get into a situation where you're physically dragging an offender into the courtroom where they might be disruptive, disrespectful, even violent. Would that necessarily be a better outcome for the victims mm. there who are there to see the, the uh, defendant delivered their justice? So all of this is complicated. One compromise that's been suggested is that maybe the sentencing could be streamed live into the police cell or the court cell mm. of an offender so that they have to listen to justice being delivered, but they can't respond to it. I feel like every time something this terrible happens, and this is truly terrible, you know, you kind of think, well, you know, how could anyone do this? How can we stop it? Does, you know, how, what conclusions can we draw listening to what the doctor said there about how to try and make sure this doesn't happen again? Well, a motive was never established in the case of Lucy Letby, mm. and that's a, a very interesting fact in this case. And while that's important in terms of convicting a criminal mm. quite often, it's not actually necessary in order to stop them from committing mm. those crimes. You just have to establish a pattern and think something is going on here. And that is where the hospital and management are accused of failing here mm. because they were told for two years, we've got suspicions that something is going on. We don't know what, we don't know why, but something is going on. And yet they didn't call in the police. And what Dr Jayaram and others want is some kind of accountability here. I mean, the executives I mentioned in my report there have disputed uh, his mm. claims and they say they will cooperate fully with an inquiry. But whatever comes out of that inquiry, what's actually going to happen to the managers? Whereas mm. doctors can be referred to the General Medical Council, they can mm. be struck off. None of that applies to NHS managers. And that's what Dr Jayaram wants to change so that they have to be mm. uh, held accountable for past failings and potentially stopped from repeating those failings in future. OK, Paul. Thank you very much indeed. We begin with breaking news tonight. Law enforcement sources confirming three victims and the shooter have all been killed in a shooting at the Dollar General on Kings Road near Edward Waters University. Good evening to you, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm Destiny McKeever. And I'm Anthony Austin. So we're still working to get all this information confirmed for you. We're waiting on a press conference from the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. But as Destiny just mentioned, we know from our sources that at least four people are dead tonight in this shooting. And our team coverage begins with Atia Collins. She's been on the scene since the shooting for several hours now. That's right, Anthony. I arrived here on scene around one o'clock and when I got here, we saw helicopters flying around in the area. We saw SWAT officers out walking around with weapons. We saw armored vehicles being brought onto the scene and here we are a couple hours later, still a very active scene here behind me on Kings Road and go ahead and take a, take a look at this footage from earlier. We had multiple city leaders come out to this area, including Mayor Donna Deegan, Representative Angie Nixon, and we saw City Council member Jacoby Pittman and Rockman Johnson. They came out and held a community prayer in the middle of the street 
gathering the community together, many of them crying out, some of them fearful that their family members might be involved in this violence. A lot of people just praying for an end and for a peaceful solution here in this community. Now we had the chance to talk with Councilwoman Pittman, who she was very emotional, again, having seen this violence before, and she's calling on the community to come together. Take a listen. Our sheriff is doing the best that he can, but as an alignment and resources to the community, we got to keep working together. This right here today was a tragedy. Now, again, as you heard, confirmed from our sources, at least four people dead, that including the shooter. And I talked to one woman who believes that her son-in-law is one of those victims. She has not confirmed that just yet, but it's very emotional from that woman who talked to me a little bit about the grief her family is feeling and also about her calls for peace to the community. I'm going to toss it back to you in the studio. Reporting Atia Collins, First Coast News, on your side. All right, thank you so much, mm. Atia. We are still, again, waiting to hear back from that family, and we are still waiting to actually hear back from police as well about what took place in this shooting. That's right. This is just such a tragedy that we're reporting on tonight on this Saturday, but we do want to check in right now with our Cheyenne Cole. She's actually joining us live from the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office because we're waiting for a news conference so we can get the information confirmed about exactly what happened on Kings Road, Cheyenne. That's right, Anthony. I followed Donna Deegan, Mayor Donna Deegan, over here just a couple hours ago when they let us know that this is where that press conference was going to be. You might be able to hear that JSO's helicopter that was over at the scene is now just landing on the roof here very loud. Um, and as I said, Mayor Donna Deegan is here. Her uh, director of strategic initiatives and press liaison, Melissa Ross, is here. And I also saw Clay County Sheriff uh, Michelle Cook come inside along with City Council Vice President Randy White just a few minutes ago. And I've been hearing that uh, some other agencies from across the country are calling in to JSO in order to speak with Sheriff TK Waters. I have not been able to uh, see him here yet, but like I said, I have seen several other people. I'm also hearing that we should expect to hear something about this here in about 30 minutes or so. So we will uh, get back with you and update you here in a minute. Reporting live in Jacksonville, Cheyenne Cole, First Coast News on your side. Cheyenne, thank you. And we want to continue our team coverage tonight with reaction from people who live near the scene of the shooting. Yeah, that's right. Renata De Gregorio joins us right now. Uh, she's live in that area. She's been talking with neighbors. I actually have been watching you through your live shot here um, as we've been waiting to go on and just heard some of that emotional sound you were able to get, Renata. Yeah, Destiny, people are really upset out here and now they've been waiting in the heat for hours just to get some more information about their loved ones, about their neighbors. There were some times out here where people were yelling, they've been crying, it's gone really heated. Right now though, you can see it's a lot more calmed down. We just had a prayer circles. Many pastors have been showing up. There were some representatives, city council members, also many people from the religious community here to stand with all of the neighbors here in this area. Now things are more 
more calm and people have settled down, but they're still here waiting for information. I've also spoken with several people who say that they almost went and were in the area of the Dollar General going into the store right before this happened and then something held them up and they ended up not going inside. But like we said, a lot of people are here now and they're just trying to lend support to their neighbors. Here's a couple who we spoke with who heard what was going on and wanted to help with their neighborhood. And then, um, then we turned on the news and we found out it was a mass shooting. We had to come. It was like right behind us. Well, our own neighborhood. We can't even go to the store. And they hope the rest of Jacksonville outside of this immediate community can also stand with them and support them and their neighbors. Right now, though, people are just waiting to find out more information about what happened and if their loved ones could have been involved. Back to you. Thank you so much, Renata. As we mentioned, we've been hearing from a lot of city council members as well as the mayor who was on scene earlier. Uh, mayor Deegan did speak about the shooting a short time ago. Here's what she had to say. Well, obviously it's heartbreaking. You know, it's a heartbreaking thing for our community for these things to happen. Um, anytime that you have a situation where a neighborhood has to deal with this type of tragedy, it's just awful. And it's happened in this neighborhood way too many times. So obviously we still need to find some better solutions, but I'm really out here today because I just want to show the community that, um, that we're all out here and we care, you know, um, I, I just, I can't believe it's just, it's just so awful that they have got to deal with this type of thing time and time again. And we've got to find some, some better ways of dealing with this violence. It's just, um, it's just heartbreaking. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 26, 2023. So I have been told. I guess today will be time stamped. So this will, you can add this one to the list for oh yes I remember where I was for the Charleston church shooting South Carolina or yes I do remember where I was the tops shooting in Buffalo there have been uh, so many of these I guess Tamir Rice and Hurricane Katrina uh, for some people there have been just bunches and bunches and bunches uh, of these events but yet again and this happened so close to the time that we were about to go live I had already constructed the audio segment all of that uh, I saw I think the first reports of this at around it was well after 3 p.m. Pacific time so that would be 6 p.m. Eastern when I first saw reports of all of this it was certainly later in the day um, I already had everything together and it's like, well, very much like the shooting in Buffalo that happened on a Saturday springtime though. That was May, uh, already had the audio together and I think got an email like, whoa, what is going on? Racially motivated attack. I mean, eerily similar to Buffalo and tops. Even I was looking right now and it same rule applies. This is so current, like literally this just happened minutes ago. 
same rules. I'm not interested in hearing your updates and such because even a lot of times the uh, white dominated press will get things wrong from the first day and that has happened before as I said last time with Peyton Gendron so thank you keep it to yourself we'll get the updates later on uh, but I'm just looking at CBS 47 Fox 30 I can post the link I shared many I shared the New York Times report they got the pictures of the AR-15 rifle which many of the folks who said Sandy Hook was a what does it call it false flag they're trying to take our AR-15s that Obama specifically was trying to take our AR-15s all of that is a lie that once again one of the favorite weapons for race soldiers white terrorists AR-15 and specifically like I said just like Peyton Gendron they have the photos of the AR-15 with the swastika right on it multiple swastikas on it in fact it's got other uh, information on it I just can't read the whole but it says you gotta go through and read all the goofy uh, script and what have you but I can I can pick out the swastikas for sure uh, oh I think that's it yeah never mind I think that's old Nigra it took me a little while to see it but I think Nigra might on be on there anyway you can see all that uh, on Fox 30 Jacksonville news but very much and then they didn't get it in that news report but I watched this live before we went on the air and they have it written right here CBS 47 Fox 30 plainly put this shooting was racially motivated and he hated black people he wanted to kill Negras Sheriff TK Waters black male said at a news conference I watched that live before I'm not take that back might not have been live but I wake couldn't have been that old watched it just before we went live this evening and even for added context so today is August 26th Emmett Till was lynched on August 28th that is why the march on Washington in 1963 was on August 28th two days away our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have thoughts observations Man, shooting in Florida, three people dead, all of them black, two males, two black males, one black female. Hated black people. More of these Dr. Welsing said that white genetic annihilation. Expect more of these types of attacks. Columbine. Uh, let's see I was excited that you know Florida will certainly be much of the attention I guess our one exception would be our caller we do have listeners in the North Florida area such a huge state so the people that are in North Florida this happened like right in literally your backyard for sure I would be interested what in the world I would definitely be interested but the rest of the folks you know yeah no spreading rumors, gossip, and you and uh, what someone texted you, what you read on TikTok, and all of that. We had those errors before, trying to minimize confusion. Prior to today's incident of white terrorism, 
uh, I was really looking forward to talking about because there were so many events that took place as is always the case but I was really looking forward uh, to talking about the first report that we heard about the black vultures man that was on Monday when I heard that so that's you know different lifetime now but when they were talking about those black vultures I said oh my goodness 40 of them they gang up on the cat thought he was going to start crying they just gang up on him and peck him to death and oh I said what what we're going to do I said what we you do is you get the vulture you hang him up effigy you spread his wings wide you cut off his testicles to scare the rest of his friends and show him and say wait a minute they didn't say cut his testicles oh, oh I got got carried away but you you lynch the nigger vulture and that shows the rest of his cousins and friends this will happen to you I said what are we gonna do cause they're just so bold one thing I can't stand is an uppity vulture Man, it sounds like, are they talking about vultures or are they talking about negras? Especially when they guys are, well, they say, you know, sometimes the vultures, they get a bad rap. The nigger vulture, they just stand around and, you know, they just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Where they, they just look guilty. I've never, I'm not a member of the Audubon Society, John James Audubon. They wouldn't have me. So I'm not, you know, real knowledgeable about the different types of vultures. I have to look. Maybe they got some albino vultures somewhere. They're the mascot of the town or something. I have never in my days heard of a bird looking guilty. Niggardly, dare I say. I maybe was influenced a tad bit because we did just come through Negro Kitten Day, which is official holiday. Negro Kitten Day. They got to reform the image. Same type of thing. I guess the Negro cat sits around looking guilty. Like, oh, he crossed that path. Oh, nigger vultures, nigger kittens, Negro negras. Like, ah, oh, oh, bad omen all the way around. Ugh. I was really excited, looking forward to, to talking uh, about that report, some of the others, but I mean, Florida. The number 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again. Six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. I'll just say two quick things because they do kill black people all the time. We did hear the report about the uh, non-white Ethiopian migrants being gunned down allegedly large numbers of them they do kill black people all the time that's the system of white supremacy racism non-white people in general are killed all the time all over the known universe 
the segment that we heard, uh, the road rage incident, so-called incident of white terrorism, really, on I-285, I perked up. It's like, oh, man, I've been to Georgia. Like, oh, man, lived in Atlanta. Like, oh, my goodness, what, you know, what's going on? DeKalb County, I think they said. And they said they're out on I-285, and the guy hops out of the vehicle and is cursing him. Nick Ren, rah, 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 rah. That, what, have I, what I said before, for 12 years, I think, I've been playing that segment. James Craig Anderson ran that nigra over. I have said, hey, you should be thinking these sort of incidents. This person is probably armed. They're looking for the opportunity. I can shoot me a nigra or a whole car full of nigras. And hey, I was standing my ground. I was afraid. You know, we got these nigra vultures and I've been terrorized, you know. They they come and they got my calves. I mean, I just I carry my gun. I mean, I'm not tolerating nothing. Not to- tolerating no uppity vultures, no uppity niggers. And you know, I had to shoot them twelve times, hang them up there with the vultures too. They're looking for that sort of opportunity. Then they'll say the same thing they said about the vultures. They, you know, they stand around looking guilty and everything. You know, he cut me off on the road and what have you. You know. I had to shoot him 10 times. I got my AR-15 with me, you know. That's what you got to be thinking for these sort of incidents. I've been saying this throughout the COVID-19 situation. Unless you're ready to die right now. This person cut me off or flipped me off or, you know, whatever. Uh, Unless I'm ready to die right now. I'm prepared to kill right now. All of the above. Everything that's going to happen after that right now. If that's not the case. Let that person go. If you have to take an exit, let that person go. Get the information, make a report for sure, but let that person go. You should be thin. They they hop out of the vehicle. You should be. It should be more than 50-50. It should be like 80%. This person is probably armed. Like, oh yeah, they want to. They are looking for a fight. That's the, you should be thinking, make my day law. That's what they're thinking, like, make a move, nigga. Make a move, nigga. Oh, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I got it already. Stand my ground. I was standing my ground. I'm saying it already. I was standing my ground. I was standing my ground. I was standing my ground. Let it go. Again, he said that in the second. He said, hey, I live to see another day. They shot up the Dollar General. That might have been, could have been the same fella. George is not that far from Florida. I don't know. Could have been his cousin. Someone with the same way of thinking. I hate niggers. Ready to kill me one of five or 20 of you all. Certainly if you didn't cut me off or whatever. James Craig Anderson. He didn't even cut anybody off. He was just a pedestrian. Victim of terrorism. See if they use the word terror. See if they use the word terrorism. And see if. Now what I just said. What I just say. I said today is. August 26th, two days from now, Emmett Till, they mention his name all the time, most privileged black male ever, August 28th, that's why the March on Washington happened on August 28th, 1963, because that's the date Emmett Till was killed. Now, we've had a whole year and a half of the anti-lynching 
hate crime bill, right? Biden, uh, excuse me, Biden bragged about that. Hey, how about this? It's election time, right? We got that no count mugshot indicted former president getting all the shine. Hey, we show him up, man. We show him up. Get some of Emmett Till's relatives and stand out on stage. Get the attorney general first time in U.S. history. Emmett Till hate crime bill told you if you ain't with team Biden you're not black and then you do your mic drop mm. you don't get all the black votes you don't do that one for traumatic effect matter of fact he could do that on August 28th mm. remind him why was it on August 28th why was the march on oh yeah and man, we didn't forget my privileged black little brother Emmett Till for you dollar journal that's no lynching in the 21st century maybe maybe he would still be a suspected racist even if he did all that I'm just saying that's that's my vision if you really want to make this dramatic and bang get a running start on the campaign trail in the 2024 and all of that man I'm with my black brothers I'm with my black brothers and sisters that's prosecuting President Trump Black brothers and sisters, be with me, 2024, no more. Till, black brother. Hmm. Uh, if it had not been a Florida day, I probably would have said a lot more about the Lucy Letby situation. I will only say the ultraviolence is so fitting. I did not get to include or explain that audio I used when Dr. Jenny Bulstrode was with us to talk about global system of racism and black metallurgists in the UK a couple weeks back. There were tech issues. We did the program, but the switchboard wasn't working, so I didn't get to play that audio at the beginning for the live broadcast it's in the archive, but I didn't get to explain it live time because I didn't play it live time. But I was going to say that song is the dirge for the funeral of Queen Mary, not the queen that just passed. That dirge was used by Stanley Kubrick in the film Clockwork Orange. Infamously, it did cause some stir, but whatever infamous film that's in the intro too. really shock you much closer to when Queen Mary died too so it would have been even more salient but he said he did that deliberately to take something that was associated with the British Empire and the state something so sacred and then the shock of having this be associated with ultraviolence and I said really that's the way we should think of the empire of white supremacy, Britain or otherwise, ultraviolence. That's what it is. That's what that program was about, ultraviolence. We're going to steal these niggers and take all of the intellectual property and skill and use that for our empire of global white terrorism. I played that for uh, the lead for Lucy Letby's segment, killing all of these children, ultra violence although it would have been very fitting for Jacksonville as well that's that's the whole system of white supremacy racism that's why I said they kill black people all the time so you do have to kind of keep things in context 
ultra violence, white terrorism. That is all the time. And Dr. Welsing did tell us right after Charleston, hey, I would expect more of these white genetic annihilation. I don't even have the details, nor does anybody else at this point. I don't think about all the, you know, why did he pick this specific location? How long was this planned? I did see reports that he left multiple uh, manifestos. The same uh, sheriff, TK Waters, non-white male, told us they had manifestos plural. So maybe they'll release them. We'll get to see, you know, what he had to say about Negras and how long he had been planning all of this. But I mean, hey, and that's also why I said we talked before about talking with your children. Honestly, there is no shield. Not the grocery store, not the church, not the school, not your own residence. There is no shield. You have to. It is absolutely mandatory. Explain white supremacy, racism to your offspring and really as soon as possible as soon as you think that they could walk to the dollar general hopefully not there but the store whatever they could walk to the tops you should explain to them even this we are the metaphor that we are taking our life in our hands just going to the grocery store stepping out of we don't have to step out of bed plenty of those incidents too Go to the wrong house, whatever it is. Hey, system of white supremacy, ultra violence, particularly against dark people. Super extra common. Uh, let's see. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate again uh, if you have thoughts uh, about the Florida situation that's great but we do not lead updates and such a lot of this information is still being updated and all the rest of it so we will wait and get further updates uh, tomorrow and as the days unfold I'm sure they will investigate and let us know just want to minimize errors as best we can thank you kindly let us see uh, get to the switchboard yeah it's pretty stunning I was prepared for other things and then another one of these uh, let's see first few folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have thoughts to share proceed Hey Gus, um, victim from New Jersey. Um, I just wanted to most comment on the um, that situation, the Florida situation. Um, you know when I, cause you know I frequent the gym, so I go to the gym, and even when I go to the supermarket, it's like any place that I go, um, you know, public place with a lot of people, I just always look for the exercise. Um, you know, especially when I'm in the gym, and I mean, I was I was just in the gym the other day. And I just was, you know, just, just, um, looking over the facility and just looking, you know, where, uh, um, you know, I just like, and, and, and I think more of these incidents are going to happen. 
um, in lieu of the, um, the Donald Trump thing. This, this is all speculation. I mean, I could be, you know, I, I would love to be wrong with the plastering of um, black prosecutors and black judges presiding over um, uh, the situation with uh, former President Donald Trump. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm believing and, you know, and I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, a lot of, um, anger is going to be, um, taken out on black people. Um, and also being though, like, you know, that I do drive trucks. So I'm in and out of different areas. Like I'm always, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just always on guard, you know, even listening to the cows. And when I'm unloading the truck and I'm in the street and I'm exposed, you know, I can just basically have some random person, you know, decide to, you know, use their car as a weapon, you know. So I'm just um, always mindful. Um, VGQ, you know, the Congressional Black Caucus, you know, you know, I just, you know, um, I would, I would, you know, I just would want them, you know, again, like I said, um, they're, they're victims as well. But when, you know, when we have just like, you know, politicians that's using their platform to, um, promote anti-blackness, we have a, um, Ron DeSantis, um, we have, um, there's another candidate named, um, Vivek Raswamy, um, non-white, um, um, Indian um, male. He also uh, he he also has a lot of uh, he uses a lot of black anti-black uh, talking points. So I'm I'm just you know so I'm seeing that you know people are that aspiring to get the what they would call the conservative or Republican vote. You know they have to. They they have to some way somehow, you know, um, sound black. You know they they you know whether it's um you know woke or um you know uh, they got to talk about crime, but you know I I don't I don't know. Then again, you know what does I don't really even know how helpful or I'm not even saying that it would solve anything, but. This is just me. I would just want to see, you know, um, people in the Congressional Black Caucus and Congress, you know, just speak out more um, and call it for what it really is. When we see people in these political um, parties and even, even news organizations that are using, you know, dangerous anti-black um, rhetoric. Um, it, it really doesn't take much to um, um, I think, um, influence uh, a white you know. So you know, you know. So, but still, you know, if what I would want out of a politician, because I mean, um, I mean, in my district, well, not my district, my former district in North New Jersey, you know, you have Donald Payne. You know, so I really haven't, um, and I got to look. I haven't really seen whether Congressman Donald Payne is vocal and, you know, just, you know, calling, um, you know, some of the, some of the rhetoric and the uh, political 
uh, space, you know, calling it out. But, you know, I, I would just want to see that more, you know. But, again, like I said, VBQ, this is just a wish, a request. I'm not saying it will solve anything, but, you know, it, it's, 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 we, we just kind of, we really just need all hands on deck. And, you know, we, we really need, you know, people that's in those spaces to really call these politicians out, people that have a large platform, you know, so. And I, I, don't, I don't know, um, Gus, and I'll close with this. Has, has Ron DeSantis, from your knowledge, um, made any statements uh, about this shooting in Florida? And I close. Let's see, much obliged victim in New Jersey. I thought I saw. Oh yeah, I thought I was. I thought I did see um, where they spoke with him, or I guess someone got a video response from the governor. Let's see. Describe. Uh oh. So this is from First Coast News, Jacksonville. Uh, Jacksonville Sheriff wants Governor DeSantis after speaking by phone with the sheriff called the shooter a scumbag and denounced his racist motivation according to the Associated Press this guy killed himself rather than face the music and ex- accept responsibility for his actions. He took the coward's way out. There's our descriptor again, uh, said DeSantis, who was in Iowa campaigning for the Republican presidential nomination. Uh, I this short video with Mr. DeSantis as well. But yeah, he called it a very cowardly act. Uh, Governor DeSantis. So we've heard that a few times with these white gunmen. Uh, I will say uh, the metaphor, all hands on deck, that's not going to happen in the system of white supremacy racism. Uh, Dr. Welsing used to remind us all the time uh, the vast majority of non white people do not understand white supremacy racism. Therefore, logically speaking, we cannot logically expect most of the non-white people uh, for their hands to be on deck for them to accurately, constructively address the problem of white supremacy racism. That's just not going to be a logical expectation. We can just do the best that we can and try to do more, share this information with other people and get them uh, to do more, I'd say specifically with those people, I was reminded uh, that there were threats against this is in the New York Times two days ago. Officials investigate threats against Trump grand jury grand jurors in Georgia. And they had been talking about other officials being threatened and all the way. Matter of fact, that was all the way back to 2020, where they were talking about black officials, some of them in Florida, election officials being threatened and all the rest of it because they didn't do right and Trump didn't win and all this. So white people, racists, they create a lot of pressure that would tend to discourage us from doing the right thing, calling all of this out accurately 
as white supremacy racism. So certainly VGQ, but I, I can understand why anybody, white or not, Emmett Till, man, he wasn't even trying to talk about racism, white supremacy, and black male privilege. Didn't get him too far. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Lauren? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Um, good evening, everyone, and thank you for allowing me to speak. Um, I, I noticed the black vultures part. I thought that was, uh, you know, really interesting. They did not seem to like those black vultures. I don't know. Vultures aren't uh, very, they're not a highly liked animal in this area of the world. I don't know about other areas of the world. Um, but the way he was talking about the vultures um, killing the calf, it was just like, you know, the vultures were terrible. But, I, you know, I just think that's how animals operate, you know. They don't say that when tigers kill whatever animal they're killing. Um, and just, listen, I, I guess for the farmer, you know, I'm sure it's a bummer. But they were going to kill that same animal, too. Like, when the vulture does it, oh, it's terrible. But that was his plan, too, I'm pretty sure. He's a farmer. He was going to kill that calf. So I think um, that was actually pretty ironic. Um, the the Maui wildfire, it was a lady. She sounded like a white woman. I don't know. But um, she was saying that um, the rental house that she lived in burnt down and uh, the guy talking to her said she was having difficulty with FEMA, and she knows how to navigate the system. I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe that was cold, but it's like, why was this lady having difficulty? She's white. She's not supposed to have difficulty with FEMA. That, that's what I thought. Um, you talked about the church and um, the survivors bringing the more than 500 legal claims Um there was another article where a priest in New Orleans, this last couple of days, um, this is in the paper, priest in New Orleans admitted to uh, inappropriate sexual behavior with children. I'm not sure if rape is the proper term, but, yeah, inappropriate sexual behavior, I'll say that. Um, uh, when they were talking about the children and their reading levels, and um, it said 30 states reported a decrease in reading levels, and one in three kids in third grade were below the, I think they said the basic rate, something like that. But then um, the guy said, these stats seem really bleak. I don't know, that word bleak always kind of, uh, I notice it, it stands out to me. And I think it's because most people, when they use the term bleak, they imagine something dark. And when I looked it up, you know, just, just now, I mean, I've looked it up before, but Merriam-Webster actually put black as a synonym for bleak. But, you know, bleak, I think, is an interesting word, um, you, you know, and it comes from, like, old Norse words, um, bleak, like B-L-E-I-K, and it means pale, pallid, um, and and it said a bleaker, like a, I don't know, just a, a bunch of, old words that mean white, you know, pale, pallid, whitish, blonde, shining white. And so it's just super interesting how over time that word bleak that's used to describe wintertime 
desolation is come to be synonymous with uh, blackness in a system of white supremacy. Um, and also, <laughs> another thing about that part, when they were talking about the reading comprehension, the lady brought up uh, phonemic awareness. I had never heard that uh, term, so I wasn't familiar with it. But she was talking about it, and when the man doing the interview, he asked her, you know, about the procedure, how they test for phonemic awareness, she seemed not to even know, um, which is weird because that's what they're talking about. They were talking about teachers coming out of college unprepared to teach and not knowing about this phonemic awareness. And when he asked her how it worked, she didn't seem to know. And then she went on to talk about um, – she said a word like fat, break it down into syllables, and then she made the sounds for F-A-T. But fat has one syllable, and you're a teacher, you don't know about the phonemic awareness, and then you say syllables, plural, when you're talking about the word fat. It was just really weird. I, I need to go back and listen to it, and maybe other people should too, but, you know, that struck me as odd. I, I, I don't know. Um when uh, the section, uh, the segment about the lynching, um, the white man who lights the candle, he said it's important to remind people about the lynching so they can understand these things and try to do better. Hmm. I think whites already understand, and there's no evidence they'll do better, whatever that means. And, you know, if, it, if do better means stop practicing racism, wow, there's certainly no evidence of that. Um, but they might, you know, become more refined practitioners of racism. And But if he was talking about non-white people, which I doubt, but he could have been. If he was talking about non-white people, we do need to gain understanding. If that's what he meant, I agree. Um, and then somebody came in with the tacky, we're all the same, we're all the human race. That's just so tacky and so deceptive. And then somebody talked about history, both good and bad. I don't know what good history is. I don't know what bad history is. I think there's only history, you know, and these ideas are just, um, they're weird and they lead people to, I think, what would be incorrect thought processes. Um, they were talking about um, the Africans, the Ethiopians being gunned down. And that made me think I, I read a, well, it was an NPR, so there was a new segment, but there was also like a transcript and they were um, talking about uh, black people, the Tunisian authorities like targeting black migrants. And they said it was some sort of racist conspiracy theory of whites being replaced by non-white. That's, you know, that's white genetic annihilation right there. And the, you know, the Tunisian officials were like, um, it was a black male, and he said he, his wife, and his daughter were arrested by the Tunisian authorities. They took their cell phones and broke them, took their IDs, and then took them and dropped them off in the desert. Um, you know, the, they got split up. The wife and the daughter, you know, continued without him for some reason. So when he finally got to wherever he was going, you know, he thought he was going to meet his wife and his daughter, and they were dead. So that was just super sad. Um, in Massachusetts, they were talking about the law enforcement officers. They used the term, um, they said it was going to be a fair process for training, et cetera. Um, I just noticed because the word fair. Um, and also when they were talking about whatever issues they were having in LAPD with the, um, the 
uh, law enforcement officers not turning on their cameras, uh, the phrase tarnishing or tarnishes the badge was used. And they also talked about Angelinos are being served with fairness and integrity. Um, Lucy Letby, um, I thought that was a super interesting case. You know, I've read a couple of articles about her in the last week. Um, there was first the, the, the doctor, the male doctor, Robbie Jayaram, I think that's how you say his name. He is a non-white male. I think that's why he had such a problem reporting this white woman for killing babies. And, you know, there was a, a Guardian article, um, and it said, um, the uh, Lucy Letby inquiry must answer this. Why was she seen as a victim and not a killer? I mean, that was the, like, the headline. And um, in a, I think in that same article, um, <laughs> the lady who wrote the article said that people were blinded by her supposed vulnerable, her vulnerability. Um, and the Countess of Chester Hospital rounded on doctors raising concerns about the nurse. Brary and Jayaram, that's the non-white um, male doctor, were allegedly advised to write groveling letters of apology to Lucy Letby. So, um, yeah, this non-white male doctor <laughs> was advised to write her a letter apologizing to this white murderer. Um, and... You know, Trump and his supporters were mentioned. Um, that lady, the, the prosecutor in Georgia, I think her name was Fannie Willis. Uh, Trump and his supporters were threatening her and all the people trying to put those charges on him. And on social media, they were calling, uh, they were calling the people classified as black, um, trying to put the charges on him, Rickers, R-I-G-G-E-R-S. And that's all I have to do. Thank you. I love it. Riggers. I love it. I love it. I love it. Got these riggers. To- Woof. Mm, mm, mm. See? Words. 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 Now, see, they even have a word for that. What is that where you have those type of words? Riggers sound similar to phonemically similar to hmm I think that's the correct use of the the term unless I've been misinformed old uh, D.A. Fanny Willis yes she said she's, she's been sharing many of the threats that she has been experiencing during the time of the allegations I too noted That segment was from Kansas Public Radio about the teachers and the, what shall we say, the bleak scores, reading for children, more reading, more reading. Uh, But it was all white women. I'm looking at their images. I mean, I don't see any Obama, anything like that. No ambiguity. All three. What I would expect for public school teachers, all white women, Uh, Polly Hart, Angelique, Nedved Shannon Reesby when because he didn't know that term uh, either and she said oh well this is you know what your phonemic whatever register whatever it is she explains it he says oh wow okay $10 word okay what's that test like 
And it was almost like she was stunned. Like, oh, I didn't expect him to, oh, to test. Oh, and it would seem like if that's, you know, because it seemed like he didn't have any anybody there who just fresh out of grad school or, you know, I've been teaching two days or, hey, this is my first year, too. I've been on one week. It didn't seem like that. He seemed like he had folks who've been there for 20 years or lots of experience. So you should know what this test is. Right. And it's like, oh, oh, you got me there. That was that was a good one. I wasn't ooh, had to be ready. They might want to know what the test is next time. <laughs> like, Woo, man, I just wanted it. Hey, things to consider before you send your child to school. Anyway, with Lucy Letby, I will say I mentioned her with John Benet Ramsey, mentioned her on the book club, could have, well, I did mention her yesterday and said that I almost played that segment for workplace racism. I said the same thing. You got a non-white male who reports misconduct and they have to apologize. I said that yesterday. I said, man, safety, that is a big one. I said, what happens if you see a white person engaged in unsafe conduct in the workplace, killing a child? Got to be unsafe, right? You go to report and you're still shut up. Zip, zip it zip it you apologize to that what i don't know how you look vulnerable can we if anybody can figure that out that seems like a skill that victims of racism should have mastered by the age of like three look vulnerable so people see like oh my god that poor negro what happened to you you look so pitiful what can we do we have a spare can of sardines what can we do i have a blanket poor negro like Man, if you could, I would do that all the time. I would just look right poorly, permanently. Said, oh, let me. She looks so vulnerable. And, and, and people still think of her as a victim. I've seen a number of posts where people have said, you see, they rushed to judgment, blamed old let me. She didn't do all that. She wasn't even in charge. They got doctors, other people, healthcare practitioners at the hospital, their own staff. She's not like she's the one who's in charge of all the little babies there. I don't even think they just made her the fall gal. I've seen a number of folks writing online mad. You know, they get the little uh, names for the folks, Columbiners and Roofies. That's that's what they call uh, the supporters for Dylan Roof. I just learned that. That's the name that that's the name of a drug too. But that's also Roofies for Dylan Roof. Anyway, when they get the whatever, I don't know what it'll be. The Levy. I don't know what it'll be. They'll make up a name for her too. But she already has her gang of support. It seems like it doesn't matter what you do if you're classified as white. You can blow up the school. You can kill all the children. You can kill all the old people you want. Anything you can think of, really. Long as you're white, hey, we will give you a second, third, fourth chance. Second. For what? We'll forget all about it. Like, what? Killed how many? Don't even think of it, Lucy. We got your back. And, And I mean, for real, they will have your back if you are classified as white. Sue Cleaver, don't even think about it. Negligent parent. 
We don't even remember Dylan Klebo. Who is Dylan? Oh, yeah, the sunshine. But we don't even talk about suicide victim. Yeah, we got your back. Don't even worry about it. Amazing, man. Amazing. Uh, The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you have other thoughts on what transpired over the past week or so and or once again, white terrorist opens fire grocery store. I don't know what you count Dollar General as basically a grocery store, small corner store type deal uh, in Florida. I would uh, be interested to see once they give out the details, like the racial demographics of this area. Was this the same type of thing as tops where he went to the Negro side of Jacksonville to do this, where he was pretty sure it was going to be, you know, 85, 90% black people, black shoppers in the store, uh, for this Saturday afternoon when he carried out this attack is the same type of thing where he'd studied, he'd been there a few weekends previously. So he could see like, you know, what time is the peak shopping hour so I can maximize my racist carnage. I'm sure. Or yeah, hopefully we'll see all that information will, uh, come out. I know, uh, more recently they are a little more hesitant to release uh, manifestos and such. They'll say the same type of jargon that Sue Klebold wrote about that we don't want copycats. We don't want to encourage this sort of thing. So we don't want to release. But I, you know, do not take that uh, position. I would much rather let's, you know, how did you all so quickly conclude that he hated black people? Did he talk about planning this attack? And that's what, like, let's, let's get all the details because we still have a lot of people who say that there's no racism. And hey, even. Dr. Welsing did tell us there would be more of these types of attacks. Even in fact, I forgot the Walmart shooting. They were just talking about that. I forgot all about that. We just talked about that. It was the one year from all of that taking place. We heard from some of the victims and they talked about, you know, at first, you know, forgiving this person. I don't want to be upset about it. And, you know, let bygones be bygones and all that. And then it started to register, like how much I lost and how many people they killed. And my children don't have relatives anymore. And I don't have a relative anymore. And all that. like, man, psh. we just, I forgot all about that. That was flat. And that was the same thing. White genetic annihilation where he's specifically white gunman I'm going to kill we got all these non-white people hopping the border need to get that wall up man I'm tired of it coming over here raping our women president said the same thing somebody did say gonna be more of these in stage white supremacy that was what she called it greater anxiety I just told you that guest that we had on the program this week on it was that Tuesday Dr. David Herzberg white man <clears throat> uh, in that book they repeatedly because that book is all about drugs right uh, or the so called drug war and racism that's what it's about be accurate but within that they talk repeatedly about they talk they call them the uh, deaths of despair White people said white genetic annihilation. Mm. 
we're outnumbered here in this part of the world and many others UK as well mm, we're upset about that go do some oxycontin get some heroin even I told Timothy McVeigh get some crank methamphetamine roofies I told you I forgot what the uh, the official name is they call them roofies same thing uh, and all of that they said connected to white genetic annihilation that is so bad that the life expectancy dropped that's further impacting white people in the wrong way Dr. Welsing more of this more of this in my view again it would just reinforce safety like I do not I go cautiously to the grocery store I think that was a victim in New Jersey I look for the exits how do I get out of here I have my presence. I'm not listening to music. I am scanning. I think we talked about the dog bite situation uh, like a week or so ago, right? We had a victim pulled into a parking lot. Same type of a thing. Soft targets, I think they call these. You don't have a lot of security, so you could easily get in with your firearm or firearms or bombs or all of the above. But he said he got out going to drop off his parcel and it was uh, some sort of canine in the vehicle adjacent and the dog bit him. And I said, maybe a part of our code from this point forward, we say, hey, you go to a public place, you park before you, you know, hop out to do whatever. You take a brief scan. Let me check the parking lot. Anything here looks suspicious. And I park next to anybody where, you know, somebody might or something might jump out and attack me. I just take a look. Store, gaze around the area, anything dangerous, where are the exits, all of that. And then I go about my business. Now, again, this is really lame. Who have you don't always have. I just want to run in, grab my water, drop off my parcel, go about my business. I'm not interested. Got to scan it. Well, seems like it's, it's not just one Peyton Gendron. It's not just one Dylan Roof. I don't know the fella today. But it's not just one. It seems like it's a lot of these folks that Walmart in Texas I just mentioned. Seems like it's a lot of these folks. President Trump being mugshot and all that. I am sure that riled up a lot of white people, too. I said that before, too. Like, man, that would really mess with my DeSantis thing. Like, I might even have to retract. Like, we if that's going to be on TV every day that these no count Negroes are going to bully our former president. We recalibrate everything. I didn't foresee all of this. Lots to process. Again, the number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Again, folks can refrain from updates we will get the reliable information about what has transpired in the days to come other folks who dialed in with a hand up you have commentary to share proceed greetings Gus greetings everyone uh, I'm uh, like the uh, first caller uh since uh, something called mass shooting has become quite popular, 
uh, and from my experiences as a uh, firefighter, uh, I myself, uh, wherever I go, I look for exits. Uh, I look at people uh, that's around, that's around or in close proximity to me and uh, what they have on uh, primarily, uh, primarily because most of these uh, mass shooters that I've noticed, they are dressed for the occasion that they're there for. Uh, I don't see any purpose of anyone going into a store with these huge backpacks that I see people have on their backs. Uh, it looks like they are camping somewhere in the hills of California somewhere, uh, and they're walking into a grocery store or a department store. Uh, I can go and I can leave out of that grocery store or that shop and come back at some other time if I'm going to uh, notice something like that uh, at the uh, community center, uh, which is a historical building in Miami Gardens named after a very, uh, very good uh black lady by the name of Betty T. Ferguson. Um, uh, you ha I, I have developed a relationship with the uh, employees, uh, younger, the young employees uh, at the uh, facility. And uh, I basically am able to share with them some of these things that I'm talking about on this program. Uh, whereas this center is a large center. Uh, it has uh, uh, room for uh, people lecturing. Uh, it has a gym. It has a uh, basketball court type of facility that, you know, that you see in high schools, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, it's a, you know, weight room. It's a pretty large, pretty large place. And it doesn't look like it has enough employees uh, let alone it should it should it it looks to be big enough to at least have a uh, licensed law enforcement officer uh, in in that place on duty, uh, probably overtime, not necessarily, you know, working, you know, uh, on a shift or something like that, but at least overtime, uh, you know, for safety. Uh uh, uh, I, I just heard about, well, I heard about the incident in Jacksonville, uh, based on your report. Actually, I didn't know anything about it until, until, uh, but I'm just speaking that there are signs, there are signs that these killers, they, they, they looked apart is what I'm saying. Some of, uh, uh, the one in, in Buffalo had on a, a military helmet, uh, 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 bulletproof vests and everything, you know, I mean, come on, you know, I, I see that I, I'm running out of that exit that I, uh, uh, had already observed, of, observed as far as that concerned. Um, other than that, uh, last thing is, uh, uh, I have been, uh, doing some research during the week and have noticed, I don't, I don't know, uh, exactly, uh, the accuracy of the report, 
but I have been noticing in some of the uh, areas in the continent of Africa, some of the uh, some uh, uh, quote unquote Africans who are uh, in charge of things in uh, particular areas, uh, or at least reporting. Uh, I don't know if they're asking uh, or demanding, but uh, they're asking and or demanding uh, that uh, some of these areas uh, from Europe that are led by white people uh, stop stealing their resources. And I was just wondering, did you have any reports on that, on that particular uh, reports, reports that I've been uh, reading myself? And that's all. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. I know specifically with the whole uh, situation in Niger, uh, we talked about that uh, within the last couple of weeks because they had the so-called coup and uh, they were talking about possible uh, military intervention. Uh, and there were a number of black, we played some of the very reports where they had black people on the continent who were saying that, that this was all about so-called neo-colonialism and white supremacy where these white outsiders uh, in France and other places are trying to control uh, resources uh, on the continent. And that's why you had lots of white people. They were using the term uh, in the West uh, who wanted to get involved uh, and were current, uh, concerned about things that were happening uh, in Niger. We just uh, talked about that. I think we had a few reports talking about that because that's been pretty prominently talked about in some parts of the world over the past hmm, two, three months or so. Uh, we've had several BBC and other outlets. France 24 uh, had a big report that I played in one of theirs. Uh, and I think, I think some of the other global outlets, they've been talking about that quite a bit um, and pretty flagrant terms with regards to global system of racism in terms of what's uh, happening here. Even I know one of the reports that we talked about, it turned where they were even grousing about some black people and how they respond uh, within all of this, where I think there was some name calling. They were sellouts because uh, I even paused say, dang, say, no, uh, BGQ heard that earlier today, but just very similar. Uh, it seems some of the dynamics and how the focus even around the planet seems to slip from white people manipulating and controlling things to our frustration with how other non-white people are responding to all of this. Um, incidentally, the, yeah, the situation in Jacksonville is so current that, yeah, lots of folks are still learning about all of the details. Like I said, just happened, I think within the last five hours, I'm looking at the clock now, 7.30 Pacific time, I think last five hours or so. So yeah, very, very unfoldings or very very recent situation that is still unfolding I didn't want to neglect either uh, Lauren had dialed in and she was talking about the report in Hawaii about uh, they were speaking with the reporter for the Maui civil beat and she was saying that she was familiar with FEMA and I guess all the intricacies of getting disaster aid and she was saying that, hey, I've even had a tough time. And she was saying, dang, I think this is a white person. This is like, wow, you are a super duper smart white woman. And even you are having trouble getting through. Like, wow, it must be really cumbersome. Like she said, I don't know if that's a white woman. So that was Marina Starleaf 
Riker, and for sure, that is a white woman. I think blonde. I don't know if she's, you know, for real, for real blonde, but blue. It looks like might even be a blue-haired, blonde-eyed white woman. So for uh, Hawaii, I almost played the sound clip, Jock Dr. Jennifer Doudna, although I didn't play it just because that's our CRISPR reserve, but I mean, she is talking about Hawaii. That's the that's the foundation for CRISPR, apparently, to some degree, is right there in Hawaii. White woman, I don't know if she has blue hair or blonde eyes. I have to look at her picture again, but she said, growing up in Hawaii, all those non-white people, I told you the racial demographics in Maui, Maui County, where this happened at, uh, 34% white so that means about two thirds of these folks are non-white people which would match what I've seen uh, Miss Riker notwithstanding uh, but man all of the uh, fire and, and destruction and what have you Riker she's dang I did all this and can't get through and can't get any help so man the non-white people gotta be really struggling to get any sort of aid uh, says that I saw the term this week. Never seen it before in my life. It was uh, climate gentrification. Never heard that one before. Not even encouraging anyone to use it. Just I did see that climate gentrification I told you about two thirds of this population is non-white people the non-white people that Jennifer Doudna would have been around and felt like a freak need to figure out some way to edit my genes so I don't feel so freaky but they said that they had been hounded and pestered getting all these hey need some cash got all those ruins oh we'll take that burnt up charcoal property off your hands don't even worry about it we'll put some money right now give it to you in cash don't even worry about it I'll call you back in an hour think about it I'll call you back tomorrow too I'll do both they said it's been lots of that they didn't say white people they said climate gentrification I think Mr. Fuller's term would be the more accurate term there too because I don't think it was Al Sharpton Benjamin Crump making all those phone calls I could be totally wrong Congressional Black Caucus. I don't think they're looking to come up and get some property on the islands. Archipelago, I think that's what it is. Series of islands, right? I don't think that's what's happening. White people, again, and the water rights, too. They said that prominently this week because water, man, big one moving forward. Uh, they said in uh, Hawaii, apparently, water is a big deal, even though it's on all these islands or whatever. I guess they're around salt water, so fresh water that you could actually drink is a big deal and they have water rights they said they've been using the emergency situation of this wildfire also to get property and to subvert the water rights on the islands so yes lots to global system I'd said that even that segment about India and their the rocket landing on the moon any other time I'd have been like man like that's Reminded me when Malcolm X was talking about China and them developing their nuclear program and how that was so important. And other non-white people at that time thought that, like, wow, this guy is thinking about global things and whole system of white supremacy. That's so important to see that India gets a spaceship, go to land on the moon. And that's how, oh, wow, global technology even got some of these dark people getting their act together and all this. Uh, 
lame niggas. In fact, if you can get a rocket on the moon, we don't need to be giving you any welfare, old sand negras. Like, dang. Dang. And in the New York Times, the New York, I thought that was what they, the liberal, the progressive New York Times. They say it's the old racist, old Trump GOP, no counts. Yeah, yeah. Old Rupert Murdoch and Fox and them. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm liberal. I read the New York Times. Yes. The New York Times is mocking non-white people in India landing on the moon. Why would that be? Why wouldn't I thought you all support science? Don't they say that? Isn't that science? You got to know some science to get on the moon, right? Global sin. Even that white genetic annihilation. India is one of those countries. Whew, massive population of dark people and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger like oh my god oh 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 now the negros are getting right off love it being called out for what it is to racism it's not old they're not falling back on old trick this is current never goes out of style man white supremacy racism that's what we do to infinity all over the known universe Imagine if it had been some dark people like Niger or Nigeria. That's another one. Whole lot of dark people there. If it had been Nigeria, we're going to launch a satellite or, you know, put some rocket on the moon or visit Saturn or something like that. Oh, God. Ugh. Ugh. How the white man has fallen. Ugh. Other folks, commentary, they need to share a uh, situation in Florida. I was checking the news to see if they had updates there. Uh, and or any of the they kill black people all over the world uh, number again 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate hmm I'm looking at the Washington Post I'm just reading from their report Directly says uh, today's shooting took place on the fifth anniversary of a shooting at the Jacksonville landing in downtown where a man killed two people and injured 11 others during a 2018 video game tournament. The shooter alluded to this in several manifestos. Let's see. That's what I said. Several manifestos. Not that's what I mean. Like this would have to be well planned. Like I'd already been to this store. I already know this is a store with a lot of negras. Not going to have the opportunity to have whoops like Peyton gender. And my fault, white brother. I didn't mean to get you. You're going to make I'm going to call. You're going to get you going to make it. You don't have all that because it's just going to be dark people to write out multiple manifestos so I can explain why I had to go and kill all these niggers. This planning, same thing with Columbine. This wasn't no impulse and I snapped and some nigger got sassy with me. I planned to do this well in advance. Uh, tactical vest and all and that sort of thing too because you would have to acquire all this equipment same sort of thing sort of thing with Peyton Gendron and Dylan Roof and all these other white terrorists you I don't think you can just run and get all of this stuff in most instances like 30 minutes before the shooting and then you're ready to roll this would take some time to 
over here and army surplus and boom 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 hit up Amazon all the red say anything else Ron DeSantis oh let's see Ron DeSantis he said uh, cowardly the shooting based on the manifesto that they discovered from the scumbag that did this was racially motivated said DeSantis who is running for president he was targeting people based on their race that is totally unacceptable we condemn what happened in the strongest possible terms why don't you teach a class about Florida's history of these sort of racially motivated uh, attacks you don't have to call it woke we can call it I don't know you think of a uh, I don't know Florida Florida attacks let's see I'll use some of his language racially racially motivated violence in Florida years before the Dollar General there we go how about that now we don't have to call it woke or anything else racially motivated mob violence in Florida and they can start with Dr. Harry T. Moore and Henriette Moore start right there that would be awesome hey hey right there Rhonda see that's two ways they can really do it. They can include when they almost lynched Jackie Robinson in Sanford and connect that to uh, Trayvon Martin. Like it's a whole lot of ways he could do it. And really, if if that old sly President Biden does steal my idea and do the August 28, bam, this is a Emmett Till hate crime. First ever. Joe Biden, 2024. Making history. If he does try to do that. Bam, DeSantis, you, you don't steal the shine. Right here, the state of Florida. We're going to have a brand new class. We're going to talk about this in historical context. And I'm going to come to the class and I'm going to talk about Dr. Harry T. Moore and the, in his, and the importance of Florida history. And we'll even sneak in a tidbit about that no-count veteran Jackie Robinson. Hmm. Let's see, our caller in North Florida Jackson area man oh man how close uh, are you to the dollar general uh, where all of this uh, racist carnage terrorist carnage happened at uh, thank you very much sir uh, greetings to Gus the host of listeners and callers um, Gus I, I have been made aware of the uh, unfortunate uh, situation in Jacksonville and I just wanted to read just a quote from a, a victim of racism uh, from that incident. Finger slip. Sorry, my fault. Finger slip. My bad. My bad. Oh, no problem. No problem. It was a lady named Penny Jones and her comment was, I don't want to leave my house. I'm thinking, do I want to go back to the store? Is this going to start happening more frequently? I don't know what the cause of it is. I'm confused. It's a lot of different things going on right now. She said, so that was her comment. And I just, I focused on the word confused. And, and then, uh, it's reported that apparently it says this shooting happened one day before the 63rd anniversary of one of Jacksonville's most notorious racist incidents. Axe Handle Saturday. So that can be looked up right there. It's called Axe Handle Saturday. 
It happened on August 27, uh, 1960. A group of black protesters were conducting a peaceful sit-in at a park to protest the Jim Crow laws that kept them out of white-owned stores and restaurants. That's when they attacked. They were attacked by 200 members of the Ku Klux Klan who hit them with bats and axe handles as police stood by. Now, this is how they have it worded, right? And then it ends with saying, only when members of a black street gang arrived to fight the Klansmen did the police intercede. Only black people were arrested. So um, many levels of racism, white supremacy operating at that time, and it still seems to be going on right now to this day. And that's all I wanted to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Wow. That is, uh, man, to the, well, now one, the victim confusion. I don't want to leave the house system of white supremacy, racism. Now, unfortunately, Dr. Welsing, she did tell us to answer her question. Yes, this is going to continue happening. Still have a system of white supremacy, racism. And in fact, this is going to accelerate white genetic annihilation. And I say, hey, whether it is authentic and their population percentage and or actual numbers are declining or even if they just think that this could be happening even if that's not the case either way hey we are fearful anxious about this must do something that's what Peyton Gendron said that's what Dylan Roof said this fella apparently if he got multiple manifestos that's what I would suspect they're all I mean within minutes they're saying oh yeah this was racially motivated within minutes they got pictures AR-15 with multiple swastikas on it. And it looks like it might have Nigra written on it too. Within minutes? Yeah, I'm going to submit the same thing. Great equalizer. Go out and kill Nigras. Walmart, El Paso, same thing. And then, he, as he stated, our caller... Uh, now, that's multiple so-called anniversaries. He said the axe handle uh, attack that I'd never even heard of. The newspaper they referenced the Jacksonville landing attack, which I also hadn't heard of. That was in 2018. Two people killed and 11 injured. That was at a video game tournament. Do you remember this one, Call at the courthouse? The video game tournament attack where they killed two people, injured 11 folks? Does that, ring, does that sound some, uh, familiar? No, sir. I hadn't even heard of that one as well. I hadn't even heard of that one. That's me either. I'm still learning. Uh, let's see. Investigators sought this. So this is that from 2018. Investigators sought answers Monday about the gunman. They said open fire during a video game tournament in Jacksonville, Florida, killing two people, wounding 11 others, nine with gunfire before turning the gun on himself. 
Police identified the attacker as David Katz, a 24-year-old from Baltimore. Hey, Baltimore. Jacksonville Sheriff Mike Williams said Katz was attending the competition, which drew professional players from around the world, but added that he did not know what motivated the shooting or whether Katz knew the victims. The shooting rampage turned a Madden NFL 19 competition at the Jacksonville Landing, a popular riverfront gathering place in the city's core, into the latest public gathering suddenly shattered by gun violence. The spasm of violence also added Jacksonville, Florida's biggest city by population and size to the grim roster of places thrust in the national consciousness following a burst of gunfire, a list that in the Sunshine State alone has recently included Orlando, Fort Lauderdale, and Parkland. Uh, And then it goes on to give some more of the information. We had that report in Missouri about the gun violence against black people and that is typically the case even when the gun violence is from other people classified as black it doesn't seem to help but yeah I didn't know I don't think I heard about this from 2018 but dang uh, I think Mr. Katz I suspect might have been a white person as well I have to go back and check and then see now see all of those dates just right there in that short order so this attack the so-called uh, axe handle murders or uh, whatever it is. This is from, I think they said August 27th or the same date, excuse me, on the same date. So this happened on the 28th, excuse me, 26th of 2018. And then the axe handle, I even, I think he said that's on the 27th and then Emmett Till lynched on the 28th of August all of that right in the same date to 48 hour period at the end of August I do not think any of that is an accident and even if you want to toss in Hurricane Katrina I think hit landfall on the 28th it was kind of late so it might have drifted over until the 29th but all of that is right lined up either you know I mean literally and cosmically all of that lined up with the same date uh, the Literally yesterday, the same news outlet that I played the report on for the shooting at the Dollar General today, yesterday, this is the report that they had on the axe handle assault also in Jacksonville. I talk that all the time about learning local history. It's one of the most notorious days of racial violence in Jacksonville history, Axe Handle Saturday. As we remember the 63-year anniversary of that day, we're taking a step back in time. First Coast News is opening its archival vault. We're taking you back to August 27th of 1960 with two men who still wear the scars of that day. As in much of the South, racial tensions built up in Jacksonville during the year. And each side in the dispute over desegregation became more short-tempered as the month went by. I got a scar in the back of my head from one. Alton Yates, 63 years later, his hair now gray, covers the spot where the handle of an axe was used to hit him in Jacksonville's downtown. Violence flared downtown. What we couldn't understand is why the police didn't stop these people. They knew they were coming. Yates recalls warnings whirling around town of the possibilities ahead that day. The morning of that demonstration, we had gotten word that there was a good possibility that we were going to be attacked, that the Klan 
was aware of the demonstration and that they were going to be there. He says the Ku Klux Klan existence and force was well known. Rallies filmed in 1960, a report from once WFGA-TV, now First Coast News. Fiery crosses and plans were fully rolled and footed. Then the vice president of Jacksonville's NAACP Youth Council, Yates remembers seeing a pickup truck parked at what was Hemming Park before the mayhem ensued. And we saw these men rushing to this truck and someone on the back of the truck distributing wheat from where we were. We didn't know at that time that they were axe handles, baseball bats, that sort of thing. Fair aside, the youth demonstration went on as planned. And as Yates sat at the segregated Woolworth lunch counter on the corner of Main and Forsyth Streets, a young Nathaniel Glover was also downtown that day working at Morrison's cafeteria when he stepped outside. And they quickly surrounded me with those axe handles. And they were actually hitting me with the axe handles, calling me names. The weapons now describe this dreadful day in Duval. The blood that stained the city streets changed lives. And I ran, and I was so afraid, terrified. But I made a vow then, I will never not do something that I should do because of fear. And that shaped my life, gave me the courage to run for sheriff. Glover would go on to make history in 1995, becoming the first black sheriff in the state of Florida since Reconstruction. It took us years to move from total segregation to integration. It took us years to accomplish that. Now retired, United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Yates served Jacksonville under several mayoral administrations helping to shape the city that helped shape him. And almost overnight, it seems as though we are trying to erase all of the progress that we've made. Yates is now concerned about the path he's helped pave being chipped away. Nathaniel Glover recently released his memoir, Striving for Justice, the story of a historic black sheriff's journey in the Deep South. Proceeds from book sales will go to the Where, the Where They Will Shine College Scholarship Fund. And more details are available right now on the news story on our website at firstcoastnews.com and, of course, the First Coast News app. Reading more important than watching television. Heard the news report talking about that. Maybe we can get Mr. Glover's book to place things in context but I don't know uh, they said this guy lived in his parents basement or residence or what have you the shooter allegedly again that may be accurate maybe not first 20 or the first day so who knows uh, but if this person was really young I don't know it might be a Peyton Gendron where they researched all of this and they knew this is Axe Handle Weekend I'm going to go out and just like old times whip some niggers heads kill some niggers he very well may have had all of that in mind you know before he went out to do all or even the video game shit that's more recent so i really suspect he would have knew about that one anywho uh we will have more to say um certainly about this uh event more details will be 
forthcoming. Uh, I can't emphasize enough the report that we just heard from Mr. Glover. He said they wanted us to be afraid and terrorized. What did we just hear? Caller in North Florida gave us the report. Shooter targeting black people kills three at Florida Dollar General store. Penny Jones, black female, victim of white supremacy, says she lives just a few blocks away. She said she felt awkward, scared. I don't want to leave my house. I'm thinking, do I want to go back to the store? Is this going to start happening more frequently? I don't know what the cause of it is. I'm confused. That right there. Now, hey, sometimes, hey, we talked to Grady Lewis. He was a lot less confused about what was happening. This dude does not belong here. You are a problem. He didn't have a grasp, and none of us could, of how much of a problem and what his intentions were, but he was intelligent enough to know problem what are you doing what's around here question suspicion brilliant even that not enough to stop the situation so man confusion and fear they love that when they can have us in those type of positions and man grasp number one grasp The reason why this is happening is the system of white supremacy racism. This gets at the core. What does it mean to be white? Studying local, even the dates and all that, like, dang, did he know about Axe Handle Sunday and all that? Or Axe Handle Weekend? Did he know about that? Hmm. If this was a research project type of a thing, Oh, yeah, I'd be very comfortable wagering. Yeah, he did know. Just like Peyton Gendron, we said, did he know about Joey 22? Yeah, I suspect he probably did. Anyway, we will have lots more uh, to say about all of this. Use this as an illustration. Say that all the time to try to talk honestly about white supremacy racism. Got folks, listeners, some of them say that they're friends. They try to talk to them about counter-racism white supremacy racism say, ah, get out of here you're racist radical militant you hate white people hey use this as an illustration it happened again it happened and bring up El Paso that wasn't black people but that was non-white people and it was exact same thing and it was just last year it happened again it system of and correct terms we heard that with mr glover it's not integration it's not segregation it's not prejudice it's not bias it's not a microaggression use accurate terms it's white supremacy ra- terrorism white supremacy racism would be accurate but i mean terrorism terrorism words are important if this had been some non-white this had been mike brown he had done a strong arm robbery they would have used big words to talk about that not going to have criminal negro hooliganism this was terrorism you're just going to shoot in cowardly terrorism again you get all your military armament tactical vest and all the rest of it to go shoot up the dollar gen- hey 
we talked about the Dollar General. Not supposed to be eating there anyway. All that toxic food. Harriet A. Washington wrote about that in a terrible thing to waste. Not even got regulated fare, F-A-R-E. They don't even have regulated fare. She said, stay out of there. Dang, these are people that are really hurting. I take the few nickels that I have and go scrouching. Hope I don't get radioactive poisoning from the dollar store. And you're going to go shoot that place up. Cowardly. Cowardly. Same thing we said about tops and Columbine. Coward, I said that. That's white culture. They celebrate these type of, even the axe handle. That is cowardly. White people love you. You get people, and that's even in the depth, you get people that are already subdued and weak and then who can't really fight back adequately. We're going to go beat on them or go kill them. That's white culture. Emmett Till will be here. <laughs> that's another reason you want to know history. Just, hey, context is important. Emmett Till, that's cowardly behavior when they get to talking about that in two days why did we do all that about that crime bill anti-lynching bill if we're not going to use it and oh yeah if you learn anything we're going to go in the middle of the night a gang of grown men and snatch a black child up in Mississippi because we're tough you're just like Reb and Dill and that's white people at large cowards straight cowards all the time and worship brag about cowardly that Lucy Letby just go on and on that would be the whole cowardly behavior brag about cowardly behavior sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately I think we'll be here Monday Double check social media for sure. Normal time. Invest. If you think the cows is constructive, racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. PayPal in the top right corner. Cash app. Venmo. Much obliged for the folks who have kept us on the air 14 years. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. A victim. Yeah, a victim up. of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>